Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Sammy Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, a new special guest has joined the arena. So Ashley Day, want to introduce yourself? Hello. Well, I think it's about time, isn't it? Given how many times you guys have mentioned me on this uh, <laughs> yeah. this podcast. I feel like Columbo's wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I've always described you to my friends and family members. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, hello, how are you doing? So, who are you, Ash, and what do you do? So, yeah, I'm Ashley Day. Uh, what do I do? I do a lot of things. Uh, I currently am head of developer relations at Team 17. But I know you guys from the past, the glorious days of print games journalism. Uh, so, I was I was on Games TM magazine for about six years. And that's where I knew, knew you, Sam. Uh, mm-hmm. You were at Imagine Publishing at the same time. On I think you started on Play uh, about you know, six to 12 months after I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moved around a lot. You're, what, you're on Sci-Fi now um, yeah, for yeah. for a while, and then I think you moved on to Games TM not too long after I left. After the last great Imagine brain drain, basically, it was like who's left who could actually make this magazine, and there was me. I was I was left. And I, and I know Matthew because uh, well, I was like the one kind of like Nintendo head on Games TM at the time. Hmm. So whenever there's anything Nintendo related to cover. Um, I was the one sent out, and you had to be sent out because Nintendo very, very rarely actually sent anything to your office. Mm. Uh, so you had to, you know, in the early days, we were going to the the Wii House and the Wii Flat, which I think your listeners have heard about quite a lot. And I, you know, I would uh, invariably meet uh, Matthew nine times out of ten. He would be the person from Endgamer who was there, uh, and I thought, oh, this is this is someone who. Uh, lives up to the persona that is uh, presented on the page uh, <laughs> as, uh, you know, really kind of uh, fun and interesting person. So, yeah, always oh. nice to uh, bump into Matthew and have a chat. Yeah, the two giant men of Nintendo fandom. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I um, I think um, I qualify as probably the third giant man of this uh, podcast now. Yeah. I'm uh, six foot six and yeah, you're uh, several stone. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be able to join the dots on this because it's true that I think any time that Matthew wants to like reinforce a point or justify like an opinion about an obscure Nintendo thing. He'll invoke your name, like a kind of <laughs> like a support trophy in Smash Bros. kind of thing, like um, that sort of situation. So yeah, it's nice to finally have you on here, Ash. So how are things going with you? Are, are things good on the development side? Things are, are, are pretty good. Team Seventeen is always uh, really busy, working on lots of interesting projects, many of which are kind of. Uh, unannounced so you're only ever seeing a, a portion of what we're working on at any one time you know the the passing of the queen last week just just to date this podcast uh, caused a tremendous amount of extra work uh, for us as i'm sure it did for lots of uh, game publishers and all kinds of companies around the world uh, generally it's uh, you know just working with indie developers all around the world trying to make some cool and interesting games and uh uh, you know, not go over time and not go over budget is, um, that's the harder thing to do. Uh, <laughs> but occasionally we do it. <laughs> Yet to see any condolences from the Worms social <laughs> What's that about? Oh, it must, uh, must, must be an oversight. <laughs> I'll look into that one. Epic fail on your part, I think, there. Um, I'm grateful that Ash is at Team 17 because whenever they publish something quite tasty, I can just DM Ash and say, can I have a Steam key, please? And he'll send me one, so... I'm delighted. Um, that's true. Well, that, that's the um, that's the kind of unwritten rule of having uh, kind of like grown up through games journalism is so many people go into the games industry. Uh, you kind of you get into this mode of like who can I who can I collect along a network of game publishers <laughs> to try and ensure that I can that I can blag codes whenever <laughs> I want. 
And if a, if a friend that goes to work at a publisher where you've already got another friend there, then they are useless to you, <laughs> and, and you try and subtly encourage them to uh, apply somewhere else. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, try and tra- change the trajectory of their lives in order to um, secure free keys. That's like the, um, <laughs> that's the real corruption at the heart of the games industry. Um, okay, so it is great having you on finally, Ash. So um, tell us a bit about your history in games media and your time spent with us. So. You say you're the Nintendo guy on Games TM. I feel like you're also the retro guy, right? What kind of oh, influence yeah. do you feel like you brought to that magazine? You know, I remember um, the interview process at, at Imagine Publishing, and uh, they had like a, a number of vacancies um, across the board because they just acquired the portfolio from Hybe Publishing, who'd just gone under. So they had loads of mags, loads of staff writer positions available. Um, so it's quite an unusual position in that um, in each interview, they asked us, what would you like to do? out of everything that's here uh and i was like well i want to do the retro section on games tm um and they said okay that's what you can do it was a bit more protracted than that actually what happened was they said okay you've got a staff writer job and i didn't find out until i'd moved to bournemouth rented a flat and gone to my first day at work that they told me that i'd got what i'd asked for so that was a a little bit hairy scary but um yeah (laughs) a bit unusual maybe someone just forgot to uh put it in an email or something i don't know honestly i absolutely loved it it's it's still to this day uh, my favorite job that i've ever had working in uh, games journalism particularly doing uh, the retro section because that's a huge passion of mine i'm sitting in my uh, games room now um in view, uh, just in front of me, I've got a Japanese Sega Saturn. I've got a twin Famicom, a Commodore CD TV. Um, my desk where I work every day has an Amiga and an MSX on it. Uh, I'm, I'm surrounded by this stuff, and I, I genuinely do uh, love it. Um, I think I might be more interested in old games than I am uh, new games. I, I, mean, I don't really know why they bother making new games, because there's so many great <laughs> old ones that already exist. <laughs> so wasteful, right? So, point? But a, bold, a bold statement from Team Seventeen. There. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. Yeah, might 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 not have much of a job if we stop making new games. But, um, we can we can re-release Alien Breed. Um, I, I keep I keep saying every week since twenty seventeen, and uh, it hasn't happened. What what were we talking about? Retrosection on Games TM. You know, honestly, I could I could go on forever, and I shouldn't because we've got a very exciting. Uh, topic to talk about but uh yeah one of the happiest times of my life uh to to come into a you know i think a a pretty big magazine for its time and pretty pretty well respected and to be given this um enormous section of the magazine as a new staff writer who's never done the job before i'm told you can decide every page every word that goes into this section month by month just do whatever you like because we don't know anything about retro games so off you go right in hindsight that was that was a massive privilege and i think it set me on on a really good path because i learned so many skills so much of the craft of magazine editing um i think it it created a natural progression up to you know eventually um deputy editor of the the magazine and i imagine as as i'm sure is the case that a lot of publishers deputy editor often meant you were the editor you just weren't being paid to do it because there was <laughs> no editor above me there was rick porter who was editor-in-chief he was managing several titles at once i had a lot of support from him but really uh, there was like a, a two-year period where i was just running the magazine and that was uh, i'm not even complaining about that that was that was awesome uh, i you know just really enjoyed it and uh, it was kind of a dream of mine as a kid and a teenager to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I grew up reading like CVG and Edge, 
and just just thought, well, this this looks like a, a fantastic life. Um, and it really mm. was. Um, I, I think it's, you know, um, so many people would love to be in that position of, you know, literally getting paid to play games. Like, that's it's a bit of a cliche. People um, think that about me now that I work in the games industry. Uh, it's really not true. I don't get to play games very often at all. But as a games journalist, yeah, yeah you're, and you that's what you're doing. And you have the, the enormous privilege of being able to kind of transmit your voice and your opinion to tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of, of readers across the world. Like, you, you, you can't, anyone who complains about it, I just think, what, what are you talking about? It's, it's a great mm, privilege. Yeah. I mean, you know, I feel like your memories are warped a little bit in the sense that um, playing games felt like it was only, at most, like 20% of the job, Ash. But, like, um, maybe your experience is different. I don't know. Um, no, it's probably it's probably not that different. Um, but, it, you know, the uh, it, you know once the playing is over, you're then kind of, obviously, you're formulating that play experience. You're, you're kind of uh, mulling over that experience in your mind and trying to convey it to somebody else. Um that's kind. That's kind of just another form of play, anyway. In my mind, it's it's such great fun. Mm. Um, it's I don't think there's much of a downside, except it didn't pay very well, uh, and that's why I had mm. to leave in my thirties <laughs> when uh, when I wanted to do things like buy a house and have children and own a dog. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I think I would have done it forever. Yeah, it was um, a particularly strong team. Yellow Games team at the time as well, right? Yeah, Matt Handrahan and yeah. other people who I can't really remember. You mentioned Rick, but. Um, <laughs> There was that guy who went to join the police. There was that guy. Um... That was that was Adam Harold. I feel like I have to give everyone a shout out now, just in case they're listening. I, uh, Adam yeah. Harold uh, went to came from the police, went back to the police, went to do PR for them. Um, I'm not sure how that works. Uh, we, we... We've arrested twenty suspects this week. <laughs> we thought it was hilarious. Um, me and Dave Shaw at X360 to um, do the wire thing of shouting five o five o whenever he walked past because he got oh, the job. Oh, they love that. <laughs> I guarantee I you, he hated that. <laughs> I don't think he even understood what we were doing, to be honest. Um, but it was um, nonetheless quite enjoyable. Um, but yeah, yeah. Sorry to derail you there, Ash. But yeah, good, good, strong team on TM, right? Yeah. Um, Matt Handrahan went on to run GamesIndustry.biz for for years. He then went to PlayStation. I think he's now working at an indie publisher, managing their portfolio. So a kind of similar path to me, and you know, one of the smartest cookies I've ever worked with, mm. and has beautiful, luscious, Prince Valiant style. Uh, blonde hair, uh, mm. which um, uh, you know you just have to imagine as a podcast listener, but it's, <laughs> it's a spectacular thing to see. Um, John Denton, who went on to, he's now a massive uh, YouTuber doing like music reaction videos, and also somehow a part-time like MMA fighter. Um, interesting people in games journalism. We, um, uh, you and I worked in the same office as Simon Miller, who's now part-time youtuber rock star professional wrestler um it, it makes it makes the traditional path of just going and working in the games industry seem a little bit um a little bit dull <laughs> by comparison yeah it was nice just knowing lots of people around the same age who had similar sensibilities um you know it was, it was great. yeah it was really really good like you realize when you get to your 30s you just don't you just don't find yourself in workplaces in the same situation i think like the 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 low pay and the specific subject matters probably why all those people are in the same place but in um retrospect felt a little bit spoiled but um yeah it, yeah it it was awesome because there there were a lot of magazines that imagine because that you know like, like i say they'd acquired the hybrid portfolio 
they also had a load of magazines they'd started themselves. It was just before the kind of like print is dead thing started really to, to happen. It was print is at its peak, even though nobody's reading it. We've still got all these magazines. So you were surrounded by, like you say, like-minded individuals, uh, tons of them. We also got every Friday afternoon off. It's one of the cool things that Imagine did. So invariably, you know, you all ended up in the pub every Friday afternoon and it created this workplace culture that I think we you know, we've all formed quite strong bonds that have lasted, um, you know, uh, over a decade now, mm. about 15 years of all of these great people who um, I've stayed in touch with whenever we bump into each other. It's it's like meeting an old family member now. It's, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for in, in life is, is that connection with all those, all those like-minded people. Yeah. I'll definitely try and get John Denton and um, Matt Hadran on the podcast at some point to... Uh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? From um, afar, at being at Future and knowing about the, the Imagine afternoons off, I used to think, if I was given the offer of an afternoon off, would I actually take it? Because things were so fucking stressful and the deadlines and the workload. <laughs> like, to me, that would have been like, oh, I'd have to work half a day on Saturday instead. Um, was it like that or was it actually a bit more chilled? It, it, for, for a lot of people, particularly staff writers, it was a great opportunity to just get down the pub. For some people, this was an opportunity to do some freelance because there's a great internal freelance system. Uh, I say great, you kind of needed to do it to earn a living wage, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was uh, fairly similar yeah. at Future. Um, so people would spend their evenings and weekends doing freelance for other mags. So Friday afternoon was great for that. Once you became kind of like Depeds or above, your Friday afternoons did tend to get swallowed, particularly if you're on deadline. So I can remember me and uh, Greg Whitaker, who's the art editor on Games TM, there were many, many Friday afternoons where we'd still be like sat there hunched over computers while the office was more or less empty because everyone was down the pub. And oh. uh, yeah, it, it, that felt a little bit it was easy to get bitter at those times yeah it just to be clear matthew it wasn't a dos like it wasn't a nine-to-five oh, job no no i'm not means. saying it was, but I, I used to, yeah i was like i don't know if i would take up an option of like enforced fun <laughs> yeah um so yeah it was that that was that was cool and i do have good memories of that i worked with you for what like i think five years in the end uh ash so a uh, long long time um so how's working at Team 17? Which, which games are you currently working on that you can actually talk about? So generally, my job at Team 17, I, I um, when I left Games TM, I went to Nintendo and worked in social media for about five years there. Absolutely amazing job. Uh, got to, uh, you know, work through the dark times of the Wii U, which was character building. Went swimming with Miyamoto and went for a curry with him. Different days. <laughs> Wait, what? You went... Sorry. We need to interrogate that. We need to interrogate that. <laughs> Uh, this was this was one e three. Um, I love swimming. Uh, I think Miyamoto loves swimming as well. That's coming from <laughs> interviews. Um, we didn't like. It's not like we met up and went. Shall we go swimming together? Um, <laughs> I uh, I went down to the pool one morning. I uh, I could see the pool from my hotel window, and I always check: is there nobody there? Because I'm a large man. I want to swim alone. <laughs> There's no one there. That's down. so profound. Large men <laughs> swim alone. Yeah. And you know, I'm just I'm just dipping my toes in the water. And then someone comes around the corner. I'm like, oh, for God's sake! I, like, don't don't ruin my lonely swim, please. <laughs> and it was Miyamoto in his trunks. And I was like, I can't leave now. If I leave now, like that's that's it, career over. I've, <laughs> I've snubbed him. He, he probably had no idea who I was. Um, um, but yeah, did, did did a few lengths alongside him. 
Um, he, he wasn't thrown fact- off by your impressive wake. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like tsunami, tsunamied him out of the pool with uh, <laughs> with me jumping into it. Um, no, he's he's a great swimmer. Actually, he was he was running <laughs> rings around me <laughs> to wow. be honest. Uh, yeah, you can tell that you're swimming uh, most days. Uh, I got back to the hotel room, went on Facebook, and went, "Oh, I've just been swimming with Miyamoto," and loads of people in my feed thought—I I mean, with hindsight, this is kind of funny—that they thought I was referring to some unannounced, like Wii or Wii U game that had just been uh, revealed <laughs> at E3. Uh, Endless Ocean Three. <laughs> yeah, like Nintendo, well known and still well known for these kind of like lifestyle video games, fitness games. Nobody <laughs> actually believed that I meant it. Uh, literally, which I thought was uh, <laughs> well, that's amazing. Um, so yes, that's uh, that's good. Were uh, you um, were you getting to the games, Ash? That before we took you down that path. Sorry. Yeah, went from went from Nintendo to Team Seventeen, and and uh, uh, ended up running their community team. Did that for a couple of years. That was quite a natural transition from what I was doing at Nintendo. Uh, but I started to take more and more interest in the development side. You know, uh, at Nintendo, you you are very far removed from development if you work in a local market in, in you know, marketing mm. and sales. But somewhere somewhere like Team 17, you're interacting with your own studio and with indie developers all the time when you're in marketing. Really took an interest in it, and I was very kindly offered a, a new role uh, running their um, developer relations outfit, which, honestly, if I try to explain everything that does, we'll be here all day. Basically, uh, it's a position there to to ensure that publisher and developer are working smoothly uh, together, and that if any challenges arise, you've got someone who's dedicated to solving those problems. So, uh, it is it is often a uh, a problem solving uh, department, uh, and I take great pleasure in that. I, you know, I love a good uh, puzzle game, as we're gonna, as we're going to talk about later on. Mm. Uh, and I kind of treat it as such. It's like, you know, every problem has a solution. You just need to figure out what it is. So actually, um, I find it great fun and, and very satisfying to do that. Uh, but it can be very stressful at times as well. Presumably, you're not combining something with something like, to <laughs> solve it's, these it's particular usually, problems. usually com- combining budget with time oh, uh, yeah. to, to get game, I think, is, is the way to do it. Um, so I think I think at other companies, developer relations might be called like an executive producer role or, or something like that. It's someone right. who sits between commercial and development and is able to look at the big picture and how all of these things relate together and try to move forward in a way that makes all parties happy. Um, yeah, that's what I do at Team 17. A um, couple of games that we're working on right now, I think, I think one that will be really relevant to anyone listening to this episode is Sunday Gold which is a um, point-and-click adventure um, with turn-based RPG battles, uh, if you can uh, imagine that one, uh, set in a kind of dystopian London, set against the backdrop of dog racing, uh, which is where the name Sunday Gold comes from. It's the, it's the name of one of the uh, the dogs that is being raced. Oh, right. Um, yeah, um, so that's uh, that's out very, very soon. That is, that's due out this month. Um, made by uh, a, a team in Canada who normally do kind of like work for hire sort of work, um, but this is their first kind of original IP, their first indie game. So they're obviously really excited uh, about that. Um, can I ask, Ash? Beautiful album. Sorry. Yep. Can I, can I ask, are they releasing the game on a Sunday? <laughs> uh, no. There'll be. There, you should see some reviews coming out 
um, pretty soon, and uh, you know, we're fair, we're feeling pretty confident that people mm-hmm. are going to like that game. A rad art style on that game looks really good. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, really beautiful artwork, uh, and you're fully voiced as you would expect from an adventure game made after 1993. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no need to put it on CD-ROM. Yeah. Um, and the other one I would shout out is a game called The Night Witch, which is going to be out uh, later this year, around like November, December time, uh, made by a Spanish team, one of whom was designer on Rhyme, which you may remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that is a Metroidvania shoot-em-up hybrid. Uh, so you play as a witch... Uh, exploring like the, a cavernous kind of Metroidvania level design, but dealing with enemies and bosses that spew out these like Japanese bullet hell um, patterns uh, oh, at nice. you. So a re- really, really nice uh, kind of hybrid uh, design that I um, I think either hasn't been done before or hasn't been done very much, um, oh, and made by made by these awesome designers who like they really know their onions when it comes to like hardcore game design uh, Enrique the lead designer I speak to him about once a month and have done for the last couple of years every time we have a call one of the questions he asks me is like what game are you playing at the moment and you know me being me I'm usually playing some really obscure PC engine game or an MSX game and <laughs> like nine times out of ten he knows that game he, he remembers reading about it in magazines or seeing it in a shop window he's played it himself um, and it's you know a, you can't take that for granted with game designers. Often they're so close to making games that they have like tunnel vision and the rest of the video game world becomes kind of hazy mm. for them. But this, you know, this is a guy and a team who they, I think they've absorbed the best of so many great games that are out there and they're putting it into their own games. Um, so I think that's, uh, I think that's one to watch. Like, like I say, we're working on a load of games, but, yeah, mm. they're the two I want to shout out for back page readers, you know, dis- discerning people of taste. <laughs> Is it really difficult, that which one? I keep asking for it to be made harder, oh. uh, and everyone else keeps asking for it to be made easier. Um, mm. Now, that's not me saying that I'm awesome at shooting maps. I, like, like all ex-games journalists, I'm terrible at games. <laughs> um, but uh, suffice it to say, there's, there's, there's a little bit of debate of where that difficulty balance uh, should be. And they've put some nice accessibility options in there. So I think that's the way they're going. Keep it challenging, but put some like optional tweaks in there for people who mm. want to make it a little bit easier for themselves, I think is, is the way nice. to go. Oh, that's cool. Is that Game Dredge, one of yours, Ash? That's the Team 17 one. Yeah, so like a, a, a kind of Lovecraftian horror uh, fishing game where you're on like a, a, you know, a trawler boat. Um, I don't know the technical term, like a tugboat sort of thing. So not not a fishing game like you would see in an RPG where your your legs are dangling off the end of a of a, a pier. Um, you <laughs> sailing around in a little boat, and there are unknown horrors lurking beneath the beneath the waves. So uh, that you know we showed that at Gamescom, and it got really good uh, pickup. I think Joe Scrabbles wrote um, a pretty enthusiastic preview of it, for example. So. Mm, yeah, that's, nice. how, that's how it came to my attention. Yeah, it's gonna, yeah, people like it. Well, that's um, nice to get a little overview of what you do there. Um, so, yes, as, as Ash mentioned, this is the um, LucasArts Adventure Games Hall of Fame episode. And while um, we are 25 minutes in and we haven't talked about that yet, um, <laughs> I assure you we will get to it very soon. So, Ash, just a couple more questions for you. So, um, how do you feel about the number of times you've been mentioned on this podcast today? And which <laughs> of our opinions have you been the most offended by? <laughs> 
Um, there, there, there have been a couple where I've had to like tweet you afterwards and 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 uh, express my dismay. Um, right now, I can't remember exactly what they were, and I, I think when, whenever I do tweet you guys, it's always a little bit uh, tongue in cheek, and it's 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 usually something that only I would care about, as Matthew astutely points out uh, every now and then. Anyway, um, it's you know in terms of getting mentioned. Uh, so often, um, well, naturally, I'm I'm uh, I'm a great egotist, so I, I just love it. Uh, every time I get mentioned, uh, it's uh, it's fantastic. And the best thing about it is that it's really annoying Dave Scarborough, who um, I, I think uh, he's uh, a mutual friend of ours. Sam, yeah. he's a big fan of the podcast and talks to me about it. I think uh, I think he's desperate to come on, uh, and I think he said something to me, or you said something to me about how occasionally you will. Um, make reference to him, but you'll always talk to, talk about him as my friend rather than mentioning his name, uh, yeah. which is hilarious. You've got to, you've got to keep doing that now because he's he thinks I'm deliberately erasing him from history by doing that. Like, um, and I, I, you know, there's no intent behind it. I think it's just that, like, because I'm in constant conversation with Dave all the time. I don't want to feel like he's always. I guess I don't want to make him accountable for his past actions on the air. Like, I just, you know, I, I wanted to spare him that, but. Um, you're right. It is. It is borderline turning into a big deal. So um, yeah, I'll have to mention Dave more now. Well, he's he's been mentioned now, so that's it. He can he can shut up for six months, I think. Yeah, he's fine. He can still get me uh, friends and family rate on uh, Game Pass Ultimate, which is what matters. <laughs> um, okay, good. I, I I must admit, I sometimes feel nervous treading into topics which I know are like specialist topics for you. So you know, like I consider myself a fan of um, like Kimura, for example, mm. but. Am I right in thinking you didn't you run a blog about his games? I did. I did a, a, a long time ago, probably about ten years ago. I, I ran a blog called uh, Love Delic Life, which is still out there. So Love Delic was the um, the kind of boutique developer that Kimura and uh, Kenichi Nishi, who's the creator of Chibi Robo, they ran that uh, company. They made three games in the uh, late nineties. Uh, so I ran a blog about them. So uh, yeah am i an expert at the time at the time i was running that blog i felt like i was one of only a handful of people in the world who knew about these developers um but brilliantly they've kind of exploded in recent years i think mostly thanks to uh, onion games which is kimura's uh current Mm. outfit it's it's been great to see people like embrace his games uh, so much and great to see moon which was one of love delic's uh, three games um, described as an anti-RPG, it's actually more of an adventure game, really. Uh, that got re-released on the Switch and translated into English for the first time. Uh, that's kind of like a, a sort of like dreams come true uh, event for me, something mm-hmm. you, you never imagined would happen. So, yeah, in some ways it was nice to be an authority on the topic for a few years, but it's even nicer that actually like you know mission accomplished people actually yeah know about these great games now you've got that game games uh from the black hole blog too right ash i mean i don't know if that's currently on a short hiatus but i um, very much enjoyed reading about the um james bond game boy game on there uh, yeah uh definitely not on hiatus um i started this in the pandemic uh finally scratching that itch i had of really missing writing about games uh and i thought look i've got this got the time during the pandemic i'll play an old game every week and, and write about it from a very like subjective viewpoint, something you don't really get to do very much in traditional games journalism, and successfully did that for for about a year and a half, uh, and then uh, my daughter was born in December last year, and I thought I can't I can't keep up with you know completing a game every week and writing about it. 
Oh boy. Uh, that that was taking up a lot of spare time. Um, so now I just do it when I can. Um, last article I did was a couple of months ago. It was um, about shining the holy ark or, on the Saturn. Um, actually the most popular blog post I've ever done. Um, so even though I'm not churning them out, um, it's um, it's nice to see people reading it and engaging with it. Uh, so yeah, I definitely definitely want to plug that at the end of the podcast. Uh, that's my uh, that's my passion. Um, really and mm. uh, I, I do want to yeah, it'd be great if a few more people knew about it yeah we'll link our we'll link our listeners to it don't worry it's uh it's all good last up before we get to lucasarts and ash so last week we talked a little bit a tiny bit about chibi robo and we were struggling on that because i don't know me and matthew have an all right games knowledge between us but you're encyclopedic particularly about a certain certain eras of games so um why is chibi robo good um, because i know that you're like the world's number one chibi robo stand <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I think that might even be be true. I remember um, I joined Games TM the year that Chibi Robo came out, and I was campaigning for it to win uh, Best Sound in the uh, the Games TM Awards that year. Um, <laughs> I failed because no one else had played the game, and they all thought I'd gone gone quite mad, uh, but I hadn't. It's a great game, Chibi Robo. What is it? Um, let's see, see how quickly I can I can do this without just uh, droning on about one of my favourite games of all time. For Nintendo heads, I'd say it's it's probably the game it has most in common with is is Zelda, in that it has this like semi open world structure. You start out being able to explore a limited area, but the more you interact with people, the more um, kind of skills and, and equipment that you unlock, the more the world like opens up for you. Only that world is a a normal domestic family house, uh, and you are a tiny kind of uh, three inch high robot designed to clean the house um, so it's you, you your job you have a, a, a toothbrush which from, from the scale of this little robot is kind of like the size of a broom and go around the house cleaning up um, earning happy points uh, by uh, making the family in the house happy by cleaning for them but also um, kind of talking to them and solving some problems for them you kind of the more time you spend with this family, the, the more you find that they're actually dysfunctional. The dad is uh, sleeping on the couch at night. Uh, the daughter has uh, retreated into a uh, fantasy world. She wears a frog costume and only speaks in uh, ribbits. Uh, <laughs> so like, it's like, actually, I think she might be having some sort of serious uh, breakdown. If you if this was like if this was a really serious game, you'd be like, oh, my God, what's going on in this family? But it's, it's kind of like tongue-in-cheek and uh, light-hearted but it's got this nice emotional undercurrent to it so you're, you know you're solving the problems as family bringing them back together introducing love back into the their lives um through through the uh the resources of this uh, tiny unfeeling robot um and I, I think one of the great things about it from a gameplay perspective is that as the the world of this house um kind of uh, opens up for you exploring it is a real joy because of the the verticality that comes from being a, a tiny robot in a house you know just climbing up a chair or a table or scaling the curtains and, and getting to the top and looking down over the house gives it this really um, epic feeling in a limited familiar space gives you a, a new perspective on something we all see uh, every day in our own lives um mm. I think uh, you know, without droning on far too long, they're they're the kind of like the they're the headlines for you in terms of what makes Chibi Robo pretty special. Uh, unfortunately, it came out on the GameCube at the tail end of its life. 
limited print run, not many people played it. And aside from a Japanese-only Wii release, it's, it's never been reissued. There is a game out on Game Pass at the moment called Tinykin. I don't know if either of you guys have played that. I've got um, it installed and ready to play. I think I played this when, during when it was in development a long time ago. Uh, but I haven't played it since it was released. But I think that's going to capture some of the uh, joy of Chibi Robo, similar sort of thing, a, a tiny little mm. fellow in a, in a house. Um, and I think anyone who's playing that and loving it, as I know people are, I was listening to the computer game show the other day, and they were saying it was Game of the Year material. Um, mm. So I'm very excited to try it. Uh, if you are enjoying it, you know, there are ways. There are ways you can check out Chibi Robo without having to spend... Two hundred dollars on eBay, uh, you know, which you know Nintendo won't get any of that two hundred dollars. So, cut to Miyamoto shaking his head with disapproval in Justice Swimming Trunks. (laughs) (laughs) Ash, how could you do this to me? (laughs) It is true that that yeah, it's it's bizarre that that has not been salvaged um, for the West in some form. Maybe someday. So we're recording this episode on LucasArts Adventure Games because. Return to Monkey Island is imminent from original creator Ron Gilbert, something that seemed impossible for years when uh, LucasArts was um, shut down after um, George Lucas uh, sold uh, Star Wars and Lucasfilm to Disney. And so it's um, it, for a long time it just seemed very tangled up in that, and slowly it seemed like things were thawing where you had these um, uh, remasters of uh, classic LucasArts adventure games like... Um, uh, Grim Fandango and um, Day of the Tentacle uh, and Full Throttle um, made by Double Fine and re-released so people could play them on um, current hardware but this is very different it's kind of a breakthrough where the original creator has been able to license the um, the rights to his series back and um, and make a follow-up in the image of the games that he worked on um, so I guess like Matthew to start with you how are you feeling about the fact that there is a, a new Monkey Island coming out is this a series that's special to you? Yeah, absolutely. The series that got me into point-and-click games, for sure. To be honest, a little bit nervous um, about it, just because the original games were made at a particular time and place and a particular time in my life. And one of the things, going back to some of these games for this episode, has made me think maybe they spoke to me when I was like a teenager very specifically and maybe like my my sort of own sensibilities sort of moved on a little bit so I don't know if it's going to gel also when these sort of older creators sometimes get, get to go back to their work sometimes they're stuck in a particular time and it's 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 not always great I hope it's good I haven't really liked most of what Ron Gilbert's done in, in the modern era I haven't really liked much of what I've seen of the new game it's kind of an annoying one because there's obviously like a bit of an outcry against the game from some assholes about like the art style or whatever of it. And, you know, I completely disagree with those people. But I can't say like I'm particularly in love with the clips I have seen and the like the Gamescom banter about all the, the downloadable horse armor or whatever was a little bit like a joke from 15 years ago. And I'm, I'm just nervous is the short version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, Ash, what about you? I feel like you've had more affection for uh, Ron Gilbert's recent output. How are you feeling about Return to Monkey Island? Yeah, I, I definitely did. Um, I, I think also I'm, I'm a little bit older than, than you guys uh, and obviously more kind of retro-facing in my in my tastes. Uh, Thimbleweed Park, I thought, was, was a really fantastic exercise in trying to do something deliberately old-fashioned. You know, it still had the uh, you know, text uh, inputs that, that LucasArts Adventures gave up 
um, you know, around the mid to late nineties, mm. uh, Gilbert deliberately wanted to recapture like the style of the original Maniac Mansion because he felt some things had been um, lost by moving away from the, the textures. You know, some of the kind of the the puzzle elements of just figuring out how should I construct these verbs and nouns together um, by getting rid of that. Some of the gaminess had gone, and, and to a certain extent, I, I agree with him. But I was pleased to see that um, in amongst that kind of uh, retroness, he he also in, you know included some some modern uh, concessions. I thought I thought he did a really great job on that. I also thought the cave, which he did with Double Fine. Um, was a completely different twist on the Maniac Mansion formula of, uh, you know, having a pool of characters and selecting only three, uh, and then seeing how those three characters can, you know, interlink with their unique abilities to create a, a slightly different adventure every mm. time. Uh, it was a really interesting idea that Maniac Mansion did, and then nothing else really did for for a long time. The Cave did it in a more kind of like action exploration style and and i really enjoyed it um monkey island return to monkey island um it is it's got a lot of um pressure and expectation on it that those two games wouldn't have had because of the the brand there hasn't been a, a monkey island game in 13 years there hasn't been a ron gilbert monkey island game since monkey island 2 in i, I don't know when sam's probably got the notes in front of him like 1992 one. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, and famously, Monkey Island 2 ends with this like twist ending that was never, never, certainly never resolved in the way Ron Gilbert would have resolved it. He's now got this fine balancing act of like, how do you continue that while also not disrespecting the, uh, frankly, frankly, very good sequels that did come out um, without his involvement. I think he's being very careful not to, um, you know, disregard or disrespect those but also wants to make his own thing um mm. i i don't really like the graphics but i won't be telling that to ron gilbert's face because uh, again not not an arsehole i'll try not to be um i'm not saying yes by the way i'm not saying you're you're not allowed to hold that opinion it was yeah. more the the, the aggressive internet behaviour, mm. as it always is these days. Awful. Honestly, they should have their pre-orders cancelled. They're not allowed to play the game, in my opinion. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, my, I like the art style. I, what I don't like is that Guybrush himself seems quite diddy. Um, I always feel that Guybrush is a, is a lanky character, mm. and maybe that doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But to me, it's it's kind of like that's, that's how he looks, and I would have liked the, to be a bit more kind of adherence to that style but but so mm. yeah I'm, I'm still i'm still very much looking forward to it i think um i don't think we've really seen what this game is from the marketing i think they've did you know it, it's a it will be a linear narrative adventure and when you're marketing something like that you mm. have to keep a lot of it a secret so i'm, I'm just looking forward to being surprised and to playing uh, a new game in one of my favorite series uh, made by the original creator, something I had honestly given up hope on. So, um, yeah, I'm just grateful it's coming. Mm. I just worry that the absence of Tim Schafer might be felt. How did you feel about Tales of Monkey Island? Because that was Dave Grossman and not Schafer. I I didn't like it, but I don't know if that's slightly coloured by, and I've, I've definitely mentioned this on the podcast, I've had two super unimpressive encounters with Dave Grossman <laughs> oh. about Tales of Monkey Island, and he, he just seemed like 
a guy who couldn't give less of a fuck. And uh, it, it really, like, it was a bit of a don't meet your heroes kind of oh, moment for me. Shame. Probably the only one I've had. And I just, I just don't find him very, I just don't find him very funny in, like, any of his, like, internet output. And he's been putting out little clips of the game, and I'm just like, eh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, this seems about right for you. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I just... I just wonder if he's if Tim Schafer was maybe the secret source of that original kind of combination. Um, that's not, you know, they made plenty of good games without any of them. So, you know, the you know, Curse and Escape. Are, mm. So, yeah, we, I hope it's good. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the anticipation. What comes next? Let's see. So let's take a break and we'll come back with uh, a new format for us, which is the uh, the Hall of Fame format. We're going to do this for LucasArts Adventure Games, the entire output. So let's take a quick break and come back. Welcome back to the podcast. So, new episode format time. Another one we stole from the big picture, our favourite <laughs> film podcast, the Hall of Fame. So, the goal is to go through the library of LucasArts adventure games one by one, and then along the way, select those we think belong in a Hall of Fame. The goal is to boil down the entire library to five games. Now, we've kept this to the genre, to be genre-specific, because if you try to do all of LucasArts' output, that encompasses an absolute you know a million star wars games of varying quality we don't need to get into all that and we want to draw focus to this particular era of adventure games anyway so um it's interesting so i think um, me and matthew have both been rereading uh, rogue leaders by um, rob smith which is i think a 2008 or 9 published uh sort of history of lucasarts and um what's great about that book is it tells the story of how Lucas Lucasfilm games and then LucasArts came to be, and it tells the story of different teams in parallel. So you have like the um, basically what is Ron Gilbert's, you know, kind of like an adventure game kind of like outfit, um, which you know would encompass also encompass um, Dave Grossman and Tim Schafer. But then you also got like Larry Holland's uh, simulator games, which would become uh, obviously the X Wing series, and then alongside that you have. The various games they were licensing out. You have them um, wrestling with uh, making CD-ROM games in the shape of um, Rebel Assault, and that would later um, end up kind of like um, crossing over a little bit tech-wise with um, Full Throttle. So it's a really good book in terms of like boiling down that sort of history. Um, so that's what we're um, borrowing a lot of our background info in this section from, I would say. So first question: This seems obvious uh, to the two of you, but um, why are these games still held in such high regard after all these years? Do you want to kick off, Ash? I think for uh, people who lived through the era, it represents a, 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 in retrospect, a pretty brief uh, moment in time, right? Like basically the the 90s uh, and the late 80s of uh, a a developer on top of its game, just pumping out consistent quality and really, I think, owning a genre. There are many, many point-and-click adventures from different companies, but the LucasArts ones were, just felt like on another level. Amazing art, great scripts, and and I think also like a real desire to keep pushing the envelope as as, as they go, like you know, in, innovating but within within a narrow field. They, they never settle on like, 
well, this is how an adventure game works and we will we will never change it. It feels like there's always a way to refine, 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 make the uh, make the player experience uh, smoother and like kind of remove the barrier as much as possible between the player and the uh, the the world and the characters that they're um, interacting with. And I think I think that's one of the the great things about LucasArts Adventures is. Uh, it's certainly the thing that made me fall in love with the secret of Monkey Island the first time is you you know you sit in front of the computer in a dark room and you uh, you just absorbed in into that world like the outside world doesn't matter all that matters is here's this here's this guy who wants to be a pirate he's exploring a a a, a beautiful world but also a kind of strange world you, and you want to you want to see what happens next. You want to see what the next screen looks like because it's always interesting. It's always unexpected things happen. It's going to make you laugh. For me, it's as simple as, as that. Like, you know, gr- great worlds uh, where the game designers uh, do, do a great job of getting you to connect with them. Yeah. So um, a lot of the emergence of these games, I think, was tied to um, some frustration by Gilbert with um, text adventures, right, and the amount of trial and error involved in them. So wanted to kind of boil that down a little bit. That was at least the kind of impression I got from uh, reading Rogue Leaders. Do you think that's accurate, Ash? Well, if you go back to when the Scrum Engine was made for, for Maniac Mansion, Sierra were the, were the dominant force in, in adventure games. You know, games like uh, King's Quest, Space Quest, Police Quest, Leisure Suit Larry. Um, and the, the, those early Sierra games, they were graphical adventures, but they were still using text adventure mechanics. You were still having to type in commands and that that doesn't really take advantage of where computers were at the time so i think it was smart of lucasarts to take it into more of a kind of um point and click direction giving you a more kind of direct command of the story and the characters Uh, and i think what gilbert did later on um with like secret of monkey island of making it impossible to die um you could argue that makes it less of a game but for many people, it allowed it it brought out the strengths of the genre, mm. which is I, I want to enjoy the story. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of it is you know in a, in a, in an historical context is a uh, is a response uh, to what else was popular at the time. Mm-hmm. So Matthew, what about to you? To you? So um, why do you think these games are still held in such high regard after all these years? So how do you feel about them looking back? But I don't want to parrot a lot of what Ash just said, but I'm I'm in a, yeah a lot of agreement. I I'd say the slight difference is I maybe I think I discovered point and click games through LucasArts, so I wasn't like as aware of the context at the time. I was just like, oh, this is absolutely amazing. If anything, it's you're sort of starting with the peak. So to fall in love with the genre here and then go, well, I'm going to try out these other point-and-click games. And then, yes, you push into some of the Sierra stuff, which I I really never got on with. And I don't even have the affection of having... You know, I think some people have an affection for it because they maybe worked through it and put up with the, you know, the kind of problems or the limitations, then got to sort of enter this LucasArts era where everything's kind of improved quite drastically but going the other way is quite hard it's you know 
I, I don't know if many other people would have gone that other way. It hit at a time when I was really getting into films and books. These were some of the more sophisticated interactive stories. I mean, you know, most people's first encounter with an interactive narrative in the 90s could well be uh, one of these point-and-click games, and they seem so sophisticated in terms of the world-building and the depth and the characters and the humour. Definitely the humour was a big, big part of these games. The idea that... You could sense that there were there were people behind them and the same group of people behind them. Like there were lots of in jokes to the other games. There were references between them. Like there was like a, you know, they don't exist in the same narrative universe, but there's definitely a LucasArts shared universe, and you could you could sense the kind of comedy minds and the you know you could almost hear the office banter kind of in it. You know, in the way that you sometimes could between like games magazines or whatever. You know, it was just a very sort of personality rich time um which really resonated as ash says like there's a huge amount of evolution within the genre at the time i just you know because i wasn't thinking about games in a particularly sophisticated way back then and i you know i just thought i liked point and click games but actually when you go back and look at them you're like these are radically different things and they're pitching radically different ideas and they're approaching it and they're challenging their own conventions even though you know they they're instantly winning people over they don't really have to evolve and i wonder if that's that's actually part of the wider lucasarts lucas films ethos i don't know if you watched the um recent documentary on industrial light and magic on disney plus and it it seems that it's this it's this environment and time and attitude that exists in these companies where they're like let's employ just genius people who we can kind of like leave to their own devices and trust that they're going to kind of move things forward. You know, they're people who are kind of, they have deep ambitions. You know, you're not just having to crack the whip. They're sort of naturally innovative and you can sense a lot of that same stuff that made ILM kind of come to be in LucasArts, I think. Very nicely put. Um, Yeah, it is really interesting to like see that um, when you read the Rogue uh, Rogue Leaders back, the, the kind of impression I get is that George Lucas is just interested in technology and being the best at technology and in you know exploring these spaces and seeing what they could be capable of. At the same time, LucasArts always seemed slightly out of his sort of like interest range. Like he was sort of, mm. um, I think his philosophy was um, make great stuff and don't lose money. Yeah. That was basically like his um, his take on it. So um, <laughs> really interesting to kind of read about that. He sort of you know basically like founds. LucasArts and kind of Pixar in the same sort of like window and then um all these things coexist alongside ILM and um yeah go through um quite a turbulent history so maybe George yeah. Lucas's legacy is good maybe <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is that I would say that but he didn't do much to protect LucasArts when he sold to Disney right like they just that Star Wars game went away all those people lost their jobs like I don't know that's the that's the thing I feel about it like it's right. Uh, there is a like definite kind of glo- early glory years of LucasArts, and then it sort of ends in a big flaming ball of disaster because they switch presidents. A whole, I think, like there's four presidents in about five years, um, or something like that, before they close down. So, not long enough to have a consistent, um, a, you know, a strategy basically. And so, the types of games they make change a lot, and then they're just gone. And then EA sits on the Star Wars license for years, making very, very few games until recent years. So they finally started making some. So I don't know. It's um, it's a mixed legacy, but I, it's a net positive for sure yeah. when you think about these these games. 
So why in retrospect do you think the adventure game died out in this particular form? There's a very specific sales reason why I think this happened. But um, what do you think, Ash? Is there anything kind of creatively that that changed? Did the, the market around them change and the appetite for these games disappear? What do you think happened? If you go back to around 2000 when this was happening, the the, the scapegoat for this was the, the FPS or, or like the, the Doom clones that, that would have been known in the 90s. Uh, you know, D- Doom and Quake came along, and it was just a, an explosion of popularity. The fashion changed as as well as uh, consumer tastes. I think that I think that's true to a certain extent. I think probably another way to put it is that the video games market opened up, and there were genres that appealed to a wide range of players. And adventure games, uh, certainly adventure games in in the point and click form that LucasArts were doing didn't really uh, appeal to as wide an audience as, say, RPGs and first-person shooters. So if you're a publisher looking to, you know, you can only make two or three games a year, let's let's say, are you, are you going to put your time and resources into something that will only sell to a narrow margin of enthusiasts? Most businesses mm-hmm. wouldn't, right? And I think, I think it took a couple of things for, for that to change. I think one was the uh, the rise of the indie games market. So um, obviously, uh, these kind of financial decisions are much easier for a one or two person team who can release independently. There is a counterpoint as well that maybe adventure games didn't die at all. They just evolved. Some of the things that were great about them were absorbed into um, other genres. Now, you know, if, if what you love about adventure games is a character driven story, you know, maybe something like resident evil or final fantasy 7 maybe they tick some of those same boxes um mm. of, of course you've also got um things like telltale adventures or or life is strange which car- carry on some of the legacy of adventure games but for, for me they do lose something for me the, the the puzzle element the inventory management is is very key to this genre so it's a complicated answer uh, I'm afraid. Just a a, a a murky swamp of thoughts from me on that one. <laughs> no, that's fine. Like I think it's um when you read Rogue Leaders, it seems like the the fact that they made you know Grim Fandango in 3D and like spent quite a lot of money on it relative to you know the budgets of some of those earlier games and it flopping just kind of spelled the end. And then they just um full throttle two had like a very turbulent uh, sort of like development process and got canceled. There was a Sam and Max game that got canceled. A lot of game cancellations along the way with LucasArts. But um, so it kind of just all kind of comes to a halt as, you know, as consoles are exploding in popularity with the start of the PS2 era. Well, well by then they're already huge, but it just felt like the the world was moving on, and it was actually took. It actually takes quite a long time for LucasArts to become interested in making Star Wars games. That takes longer than you think. And then, obviously, by the time they they do start making this stuff, they realize how mega profitable it, they are. Um, and then, you know, it's a business, so they end up kind of like overtaking it. So, um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that too. Um, what do you think, Matthew, as someone who's maybe like less tuned into the genre than Ashes? the crude observation is a, a genre that never truly like navigated the shift into 3d LucasArts have a couple of goes at it this is this is a period where people are a little bit sniffier about 2d games and other genres which are traditionally 2d if they don't make that shift into 3d like 2d fighting games maybe like aren't as in vogue in this particular period as they were 
in the 90s like there are other i think there are a lot of genres that sort of slip and it takes a while to get back to a time where there is a either a nostalgia or it's not even a nostalgia it's just an acceptance that games can be many different things you know we've definitely talked about this before on the podcast it's it's like why you know the 2d treasure games you know get slightly sniffy reviews in n64 magazine where if they were making them now that probably wouldn't happen you know like it's it's just people are people know that there are many different approaches to making many different games and there's that tension that these games weren't like exploiting that or weren't operating in the space which everyone found exciting at the time to add some historical context to what matthew is saying there i think there's a lot of truth to that you know um playstation was the the dominant platform of of the 90s and uh, certainly the US arm of PlayStation, which was very powerful, had a rule early on of, of no 2D games, would would not approve them to be published. And there, there are some uh, exceptions that had to be fought very hard for. Uh, Worms, funnily enough, is, is one of them. Broken Sword <laughs> uh, is another. But on the whole, um, PlayStation were, were not approving 2D games for release until you know much later in the system's lifespan and only if they thought they could be um, kind of big breakout sellers for some for some reason and that's because it was the selling point of the console um, over something like the super mm. nintendo uh, right they you know they wanted to emphasize that 3d was was this new kind of bold and inventive uh, uh, perspective for games uh, and if you have a market that's flooded with 2d games then your console doesn't stand out so that's really difficult when it's when it is the dominant platform so, certainly uh, also at a time when uh, you know pc gaming um wasn't what it is it isn't as as kind of mainstream and accessible as it is today i think that would have really limited lucasarts's um potential market you know you've got you've got a a small number of hobby enthusiasts using pcs everyone else is on console and they literally won't let you publish your game on a console um you, you either have to evolve or or you or you go away and, and as matthew points out uh they did struggle to evolve and of those of those two 3d adventures that they made only one of them made it to console uh, anyway, in, in Escape from Monkey Island, which was the the weaker of the two games by far. Mm. Yeah, so that the kind of like um, it, it, in retrospect, it's quite easy to see how how that happens, and then um, the yeah the incoming FPS genre and the explosion of popularity in that in the late nineties, early noughties, and it just seemed seemed um, yeah just maybe it's slightly out of time, um, as unfair as that is, but that's just um, just just the time period they're in. So, okay, here's a deeply Samuel question for you. If LucasArts ever made a Star Wars adventure game, what would it have been like? And I thought about this today, and I think being one of the other bounty hunters in The Empire Strikes Back who doesn't know what the fuck he's doing would be like my pitch for <laughs> one of these games. Um, Which just one? Which one? Den- Dengar? Dengar would be perfect, yeah. <laughs> oh that, Dengar teamed up with one of the other ones, maybe the lizard guy, Bosk. He was a little bit scary. Maybe he was too competent, but... Um, Yes, I thought that, that, that that's my pitch. But um, Ash, I believe you asked someone about this, mm. right? Yeah, I did. I mean, th- there are there's a couple of good reasons that there never was a Star Wars adventure, unless you count, what was it, Yoda desktop stories? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yoda stories, yeah. Don't count that. It actually was a rule within Lucasfilm Games early on that they weren't allowed to make Star Wars games because they'd been licensed out to other companies. And I think that's what made Lucasfilm Games and LucasArts great, is that they weren't allowed to do that and they had to invent their own characters and their, their own worlds 
later on, of course, they, they were allowed to do it. Um, I wrote an article for Games TM uh, back in 2009, um, very proud of the title of the article, which was The, uh, the Empire Strikes Out. Uh, and this was about um, the, you know, the fall of uh, LucasArts Adventures and the, the cancelled games that you were talking about earlier. There were two cancelled Full Throttle sequels. There was a cancelled Sam and Max sequel. So we did a big feature on that, interviewing the, the major players involved. Uh, and we asked Sean Clark, who um, was a programmer on some of those early adventures. He was director of Escape from Monkey Island, uh, why there was never a Star Wars uh, adventure. And he, he revealed in that article that actually they considered it several uh, times they concepted some unfortunately it doesn't, didn't go into um, detail about what they would have been it doesn't sound like they would have got very far with this and he, and he says that um, actually the, the reason they never happened was there wasn't much enthusiasm on the team for, for working with Star Wars they were they were much more invested in their own creativity and creating their own worlds which i think probably isn't a surprise really when you when you look at uh the people involved at lucas arts uh, you know what they were doing at the time what they've gone on to do since mm. they, they are extremely creative people so they just didn't want to in yeah. in that rogue leaders book there was a little there was a little side note at one point where it mentioned that after Grim Fandango didn't do like amazingly well, one of the one of the pictures that was in circulation was uh, an adventure sounding game. Anyway, about going undercover as where you played as C three PO. Yeah, it was so funny to read about that. It was set after Return of the Jedi, and you were like in the remnants of the Empire, kind of undercover as C three PO, investigating whether like a new emperor was going to be anointed. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that idea. That like that's the other thing. It's like a droids angle to that that sort of game would work too, right? So I can sort of see see that. Yeah, they didn't make it clear whether that was an adventure game or not, but it sounded well, like it, didn't it? it well, um, it's the fact I think yeah. it was headed up by Hal Barwood, who was like the Indiana Jones point and click games, one of the Indiana Jones point and click games guys. So hmm. you'd think it would live somewhere near there. Yeah, I, I, yeah. a game where you had the two of them and like R two D two as your inventory or whatever. I'd be up for that. Like luggage <laughs> yeah. in Discworld. That's uh, yeah, I kind of like uh, yeah. It was I think I've seen mock-ups over the years of people imagining games like this too. But um, I actually kind of I, I also do admire the fact that they did make original worlds and that, that that you know the management at the time was supportive of this too. A lot of people when you read that book say they went to work for LucasArts not to make Star Wars games but to work on you know the Scum games essentially. Um, becoming is it Scumlets? I think they were referred to yeah. as when they were new employees. That was um funny to read about um you know sort of slash uh, toxic working culture i don't know whichever take your pick really choose your own adventure okay good so let's go through the games and boil this down to a hall of fame so i've got more written out here um sort of chronologically uh so we're going to start with labyrinth which was based on the film of the same name and unusually featured some collaboration with douglas adams at least early on in development yeah it's fairly interesting as a kind of precursor to some of the other games i don't know if you have any thoughts on this one ash i played this for the first time this week in preparing for the podcast um yeah it got a bit of a mixed reception when it when it was uh you know first came out and reviewed by magazines um i can see why it's frustrating in parts you know it's it is a maze adventure um, there are a lot of dead ends. The way the maze is um, presented to you on screen, sometimes you walk you know, very far to the left or very far to the right, and you're asking yourself, does, 
does this hallway literally go on forever? Is it going to loop around? Because I've been walking right for about 10 minutes. What's going on here? <laughs> um, there are um, pitfalls that seemingly are game over states, but it doesn't really tell you. I, I fell down a hole. The only thing in the hole was a coin slot. I put a coin in the hole and it said, well, you've jammed up the coin slot now. And I turned it off. <laughs> so uh, I found it very frustrating, but also at the same time, quite interesting. One of the coolest things about the game is that, and I think this idea did come from Douglas Adams, who'd also worked on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, text adventures. Um, it starts out as a text adventure. Um, so the opening, you're in the quote unquote, real world you're uh, interacting with that world via uh, text inputs through a, a strange kind of car what they call a carousel system so you select your verb from a predetermined list that you can scroll through and then you select the noun from a similar sort of thing already they were playing with what was possible in this space um but yeah i thought i thought it was really cool that it starts off in this text adventure world you go into the cinema you see labyrinth and then david bowie starts talking to you through the screen and magically it turns into a, a, a graphical adventure uh, kind of like wizard of oz like you know going from black and white to mm. color it's 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 introducing you to this new world and a new way to play adventure games really cool idea but then the graphical adventure itself actually i found less fun than the text adventure part <laughs> so yeah, ultimately disappointing for me well um matthew make sure ash gets us 40 quid because playing labyrinth for the first <laughs> time just for this podcast I, that's like i know. watched i watched uh, uh 10 minutes of labyrinth being played <laughs> on youtube and was impressed by the similar transition um tough tough break for labyrinth being criticized for being a mace <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, uh, if only there was some way for people to know for the title. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's not going in the Hall of Fame, is it? It's a precursor. It's not, but it's not super. Um, it's, it's, I guess, like important along the way, but it's not going to be in the Hall of and Fame. It, yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not a scum game either. And I think you know, not not every Lucas adventure is a scum game, but the vast majority of them are, and they they have a particular way of doing things that is appealing. And, and this one, you know, they at this point they obviously haven't quite figured that out yet so it's quite experimental you, you know what though i'm really happy that we've got one where it's easy to very clearly say no to it because i think this exercise might be impossible <laughs> just just narrowing this down to five great adventures i find really really tough i don't know about you guys i guess one thing we haven't quite established is whether is is, is this the hall of fame a kind of important games or or to play right now it's it's got to both be the best of the best and also represent this period of history like you know a kind of like flagship games representing this period okay. of history so it's got i think it's got to fulfill both purposes rather than otherwise you're more likely to pick the more recent ones to yeah to play now the right? temptation kind of would just unfair. be here's the remastered ones and then you're like because yeah. they're technically better but yeah. Well, what they do on um, Big Picture is like um, Tom Cruise Hall of Fame, cocktail no, you know, Top Gun yes or whatever. And you're like, okay, fine. So that's kind of what I'm basing my logic on here, Matthew. So uh, that's good. I don't think any of these are really the cocktail of the catalogue. Labyrinth is probably as close as it, as it gets, to be honest. Um, okay, cool. So it immediately gets hard as we move on to uh, 1987's Maniac Mansion, where um, the title, where SCUM comes from, that stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. This um, tool set that will be used throughout the nineties on, um, uh, on on LucasArts adventure games, um, kind of like a B movie riff, but a lot of the kind of like 
tone of these games kind of starts here. Um, why don't you take us from there, Ash? Yeah, uh, I, uh, you know, cards on the table. I love this game. Um, I played this. I played it after Monkey Island. Um, weirdly, my introduction to it was through the NES version, which was uh, kind of sanitized and weird. But um, what what is this game? Um, I think some of the great things about this game is is that they didn't really know what the their design limitations were, and they really were super ambitious with it. So. Most LucasArts adventures later on are quite linear stories where where you're uh, guiding a single character through a narrative. This one, I think there's like a pool of like six or seven characters and you choose three of them to take on your adventure and you can switch between those three characters at any point. And in fact, you have to do that to, to finish the game. Uh, some of them, or most of them really have their own kind of unique skills or or different approaches that they can take to the dialogue and the puzzles. So it really does matter which one you pick and you'll have a different experience depending on who you pick. I think that makes this probably the most, this is going to sound strange, but the most video gamey of all of the LucasArts adventures. Mm. Like you, There's a lot more player agency involved, if that makes sense. When we get to Day of the Tentacle, there's almost like a sort of refined slash incredibly streamlined version of this. Mm. I think the problem I have with Maniac Mansion is that it's definitely like more interesting from a like design perspective than necessarily like a writing or world perspective. Mm. And I think Ron Gilbert of of all the people involved is the, is the the brain most invested in like the form of point and click adventures. You know, he's you know writing on like you know he's written essays and like manifestos about how these things should be done where I think, you know, to compare him to Tim Schafer, you know, Tim Schafer is much more of a, like, narrative and character and story and writing guy than, like, maybe, you know, I think he's happy to go with the basics of the design. So, like, I came to, I definitely came to this game too late, and I find it, like, a little cold to the touch, even though I am impressed by its ambitions. I think that's perfectly valid. I'm not sure I would call it, cold uh but it's it's got a um i, I think you know I talked earlier about uh how as lucasarts adventures go on they 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 file down that barrier between the player and the and the characters this game still has those barriers w- well and truly in there mm. the you know with the early lucasarts scum games uh some of the like text commands are not really very natural so there's no there's no look command for example uh there's one called what is uh which allows you to hover over uh sprites and, and just get a a simple like one or two word description of what they are but you don't get your character uh kind of um remarking mm. on those things which is uh you know essential for clue giving and and, and world building um and you, you know you can die which I, I some might think is part of the fun but i think most find that it gets in the way uh, of enjoying the game so they're still to a certain extent they're still kind of finding their feet with this one Mm. Um, I think if this was my personal hall of fame I would crowbar it in there but I I think for for most people coming to the genre now I think I think a lot of people would probably bounce off this one unfortunately we can also Um, smuggle it in in another game. Oh, yes, that's true. Okay, well, let's put it as a maybe for now, shall <laughs> yeah, we? And then yeah. we'll, we'll revisit. 
because at the end we'll um, we'll total it up and then we'll um, kick out whichever uh, takes us over five and to get to uh, to get I'm, to our five. I, so I, I will say I'm happy with Ash having the final word on these because he, he's yeah, definitely yeah. definitely our 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 yeah. expert. And, and then and then I won't complain to you on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Pl- uh, that said, though, Matthew, I know there's uh, one of these games that you messaged me. Um, uh, this weekend and said was just playing X. It's ass. So we'll um, <laughs> we'll see if you fight to keep that one in the list or not. If uh, Ash is a fan of it, let's see. Um, okay, so next up is uh, 1988's uh, Zach McCracken of the Alien Mindbenders, which is about a tabloid uh, journalist who um, un- uh, uncovers the idea that the uh, this telephone company has been taken over with uh, by aliens and they're making humans stupid. I believe is the um, the idea in fact um did this did uh, that futurama episode rip this off uh ash is this kind of a similar deal the brains that make everyone stupid is that like a, a thing um I <laughs> let's, don't know, let's but, say uh, yes i can i can imagine this is the sort of game um futurama writers were playing while they were at college yeah yeah for sure um so yes yeah, second game to use the scum engine um so um do you, do you think this is significant in the overall sort of arc of these games ash no Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. I, and I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very curious to, to know if um, this, this was the game Matthew was describing as ass. No, no, no. Okay, no. we'll, we'll come on to. Oh, I wonder what it was. Uh, I don't think it's ass, um, but it's, it's kind of, it's got a lot of the same flaws that Maniac Mansion has. It's got some new flaws that Maniac Mansion didn't have. Jetting around in aeroplanes to get from one location to another is mind-numbingly tedious because it it makes you and you don't you don't really do the flights in real time they don't take hours but it it can feel like hours just walking up and down uh these airplanes and being told to get back in your seat like why is this in here Uh, maybe maybe there's a reason later on that i haven't discovered but it's um it just makes the game a bit of a a slog um and i don't think the game really pushes out much further it doesn't really evolve the formula in the way you know monkey island later would so it kind of has a lot of the same flaws you can still hit dead ends you can still die it doesn't really evolve and introduces some new flaws at the same time so i didn't really like it one of the other things is there's like um, a monetary system in the game Mm. you can you can go to a shop and you can buy items that you need to complete the adventure you can buy i think items that you don't need you can sell some of your items and i was like this is a headache like how do i know i'm not gonna like sell something that i need or or run out of money and dead end myself in this game it's just like it's too stressful <laughs> okay good well to be honest it sounds like reassuring that we've got another no here um to to make this process a bit easier so that's good. Anything to add on this one, Matthew? Uh, or did it pass you by? I played this at my friend Dan's house, and I remember this is actually like an awakening in terms of, or maybe I don't like all point-and-click games. <laughs> like, this is maybe the first one I encountered. I have a feeling, didn't this come with something that you needed to sort of solve it, like a newspaper or something? I think in its like original format, in the box, it had something which actually made some of the obscure puzzles less... I think it Less probably obscure. did. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade also does that. Yeah. So that, sound, that sounds right to me. 
we maybe had a, a less than honest version of this that we were playing and I remember just thinking well we just couldn't get on with it and none of it made any sense but I definitely seen people slag it off in reviews online and then in the comments there's always someone like well sounds like someone didn't buy a legit copy or play with the whatever it was that you needed so no one will ever buy a copy without newspaper again now so uh, well, I, I, think, I assume that GOG has it as yeah like it's, I PDF. think GOG has has whatever you need in the files so yeah steam also has all of these things as as extras so uh that's yeah it's pretty good it is it's nice actually okay. that almost all of these games you can buy on modern pc um services um it's, it's probably something yeah. useful to point out some of them have like horrible smoothed over graphics which isn't very nice but it's it's great that they're there and you can buy them mm. and many of them work on the steam deck i found out this week i think labyrinth is maybe the only one that doesn't doesn't isn't available now yeah it's not. um i think all of the rest of them are in some form so that's really good um okay cool so we have another no there which is reassuring this uh, list may be possible after all um okay so next up is indiana jones and the last crusade which i think was called the graphic adventure at the time but now when you just go onto steam it's just called the last crusade that was a differentiator from uh, another um indiana jones game from the same time this is 1989, obviously a tie into the film. It was made in under nine months, I believe. Um, reading that Rogue Leader's book, it was suggested that this is an absolute sprint to the finish, but they saw what a massive opportunity it was for them um, to have a game that ties into this. As a result um, of them using the uh, shooting script to um, make this game, or an early version of the script, there are scenes in the game that are not in the film, which I think is quite neat in retrospect. I personally think this is not going to end up in the Hall of Fame just because there's another more obvious game that would take its place. But uh, Ash, what are your thoughts on this one? Honestly, I, I don't have much to say on on this one. Uh, I played it for the first time this week. Um, I've, uh, I'm uh, a big fan of the second Indiana Jones game in in this um, canon. Um, this one seemed, you know, it's a, it's another kind of pre Monkey Island adventure. Um, feels a little bit kind of slow and cumbersome in retrospect. Um, hard not to talk about it in comparison to Fate of Atlantis, mm. which comes later, and in comparison it feels uh, less slick, less confident, um, mm. and I, you know, I didn't, I kind of lost interest um, pretty quickly. Um, I think if I wasn't trying to cram a load of research in, in a week, I probably would have played it uh, a lot longer, to be fair. <laughs> But I, I just I just had this voice in my head that said, oh, well, you could be playing Fate of Atlantis instead of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, that's uh, yeah, kind of what I expected. Any thoughts on this one, Matthew, or did this one pass you by? I've definitely played this at some point in the past, not all the way through. It's really difficult. Like Fate of Atlantis, there is a combat element to it, which is like, what if fist fights, but with point-and-click interface, which is... Well, we'll discuss it when we get to a Fate of Atlantis, whether or not that's, that's good. There's a tiny bit of fun in, like, seeing those scenes from the games kind of recreated. You know, as film tie-ins go, it's, you know, it is quite kind of true to it. But there's a lot of, like, weird sort of, like, trial and error and I, 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 not, like, necessarily dead ends or anything that frustrating because it's, it's almost like self-contained scenes. You know, it's got the flow of a film to it, so you can't go that deep without really screwing yourself over. I don't think, but it's um, lacking in the kind of production values that came in some of the later games. Fair enough. Well, that's good because we have another no. So um, making space. We are, so far we only have one maybe. So that, that works. 
Um, okay, we have arrived at the game that Matthew Castle called ass on Discord <laughs> to me yesterday. Uh, 1990s Loom. Matthew, um, how was your experience trying to play Loom this weekend? For years, like many people, I only know Loom as a punchline in Monkey Island. There's a guy with the Ask Me About Loom, which I never really understood if it was if it was just a piss take and like Loom was terrible and that was the joke. That's how I always took it because I didn't know what Loom was or if it was genuinely like an affectionate thing. This is like a really different kind of point and click game in that it's super stripped back and you only technically have one item. Uh, you play as a character called Bobbin Threadbare, <laughs> which is cute i guess and you have a magical staff that can kind of tune itself to elements of the universe and play music to sort of pull magic from the world it's really hippie-ish i guess the easiest way of explaining it is that instead of the traditional verb sheet you're playing spells which are the verbs so like you know you see like uh some birds singing a song and when you repeat that song it opens something and you're like well if i ever need to open something i play that song so there's this kind of like strange sort of at one at one with the worldness to it a kind of slightly new ageiness to it almost which is kind of interesting but i just i i found it so stripped back to just this core system and i didn't think that core system was quite interesting enough it's very like narrative light. There's not like loads of people to talk to or like interact with or anything like that. But I don't know if this is like some cult classic that I'm blaspheming here. But <laughs> uh, it's, it's certainly one of a kind, but I I didn't instantly fall in love with it. Ash, is this a cult classic? Yeah. Uh, is Matthew wrong? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I can totally understand that. I, I, um, I first played this one about 10 years ago and I bounced off it too. I was like, I, I've don't really don't really think this is working I, I think it's it's interesting and experimental but I'm, I'm not sure it's really achieving very much I went back to it this this week and, and I've, you know I've always known like you know the, I think one of the reasons it's called out in Monkey Island is it didn't sell very well but it has its hardcore fans and particularly within LucasArts so a lot of people who are very proud of it and, and affectionate of it so I gave it another chance this week I first played the version that's on Steam which has the horrible blurry graphics filter on it it's also the the steam version is also the enhanced uh vga remake so the the original was done in uh ega which is like this kind of old kind of impressionistic low color graphics that pc games had in the 80s they then redid it with vga graphics and with voice acting that's the version you get on steam and you think wow that would be the better version actually it's it's not the better version and I think a lot of people who are playing that version are more likely to bounce off it. I um, I went back last night and played the um, Amiga version, which is based on the EGA one, and it's and it's a lot better for for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the you know the introduction of voice acting in the the remake um, meant that they had to cut out a lot of the original dialogue, a lot of uh, a lot of responses to the world are missing um any um dialogue with a character that would have required a close-up shot uh they're all gone as well so it's a massively reduced script in in the vga huh. version um and you um having played them quite close together i can see that you lose a lot of the story and the backstory about what this world is and, and who the main character is um and you lose a lot of the kind of incidental comments that uh, flesh out the puzzles and, and help you kind of draw these all-important connections between the uh, audio that you're creating and, the, and their effect 
on the world. I, I felt that you got a lot more kind of subtle uh, hints in the original version, and it helped me to get to grips with it more. Full disclosure, I played that that Steam version, so. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's one of those things where you would have to play both versions to appreciate it, and, and most people won't do that. Uh, they'll play the version that's more easily accessible. So that one's mm. that one's on LucasArts, I'm afraid. Uh, I think the uh, the core system of the game does get really uh, interesting uh, later on. I think I think one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's not truly explicit about what the uh, you know what the equivalent verbs of each um, tune. Yeah. Are, and that's kind of like that's kind of the main puzzle itself is the more you use these tunes i think i think they're called drafts in the game yes, yeah. uh, i call them spells uh the more you use those and the the more you see their effects and the more people talk about them you start to work out what their intended use is so there's a, that's a different kind of puzzling element for this genre you can also reverse them so yeah yeah that that is cool like where the puzzle is the interaction mechanic yeah so uh, most of the i think all of the uh spells actually you're you're, t- you're you're clicking on notes b c d f a that, that kind of thing and you, and you a lot more notes as you go along and uh, so you play four notes uh, in a row, but if you play them backwards, it reverses the spell, so an open spell becomes a uh, a close spell. Um, you can dye things green, um, which does do sound boring, but actually it makes for one of the most interesting puzzles in the game. You can reverse it to bleach them, uh, that sort of thing. Um, you can turn invisible, you can reverse that and become invisible again. There are also palindrome um, spells, uh, so the heal spell is a palindrome, so in terms of the letters that you're clicking on, it's the same forwards as it is backwards. So whether you do it forwards or backwards, it's always a heal spell. You can't reverse it to make someone more ill. Um, so mm. that's that's quite interesting as well. I think that's a nice little mm. design touch that they, they got in there. And honestly, this is, this is the one this week. There, there are about three or four adventures that I felt I had to play to either play for the first time or brush up. This was mm. the one where I felt I really want to keep playing this and, and finish it. Um, somehow, I I don't know how I did it. I managed to lose my save game on the Amiga last night. Um, Serves me right for using a 30-year-old machine, I suppose. And um, I was gutted, honestly gutted. And I think that, that says a lot. Um, but I think um, it, you know, it is old enough and is kind of weird and unusual enough. You kind of... You have to kind of... It's one of those games where you have to be in the same mindset of the mm. era and of the people who are making it. Uh, you have to kind of get yourself into that zone. And if you can't get into that zone because either it's just not for you or there's certain barriers getting in the way, I think you are going to bounce off it really hard. So for for me, like objectively, this one is, is like no more than a maybe in the you know, same class as Maniac mentioned. I'm glad we got Ash on with like a more measured take. I still enjoyed um, Loom is ass coming, <laughs> uh, dropping into my DMs. That was that's like you know I had a lot of fun as a result of Loom from that. So um, yeah. <coughs> okay, so that's in the maybe pile then, as uh, as requested by Ash. So we'll revisit that. We come to what is surely the first slam dunk of the um, Hall of Fame, which is the Secret of Monkey Island, nineteen ninety. Gosh, where to start with this, Matthew? Do you want to kick off? Ron Gilbert apparently dislikes fantasy or or sort of sick of fantasy worlds. Wants to create a game in a world which people have. Uh, you can sort of easily place themselves into. Thinks 
Pirates is a good starting place, um, allegedly because of the both of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride being very popular at Disney, and he thinks you know this is something everyone gets their head around. Also, the excellent uh, Tim Powers novel on Stranger Tides, which has been uh, cribbed for a Pirates of the Caribbean film. If you haven't read it, I really, really recommend it. Kind of a sort of slightly comic pirate fantasy adventure. Works with Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman. Um, I th- is this their first big writing gig at LucasArts? Yeah. The three of them create this incredibly fully formed universe off the bat where you are Guybrush uh, Threepwood, who is trying to become a mighty pirate and encounters a world of undead pirates and voodoo and strange trials to become a pirate he meets the eventual love of his life um elaine marley and i can remember playing this and feeling like i was big into terry pratchett at the time and it was like stepping into something as fully formed as a terry pratchett novel you know these characters just absolutely leapt off the screen you know i fell in love with them i i actually i'm, I'm sort of telling a slight lie there i played monkey island 2 first was my first ever big point and click game i fell in love with the world there but you know going back to this everything i loved about it is is all there they definitely get better at making these games but like the core ingredients of like the sort of surreal comedy logic of the puzzling the volume of banter and puns and witty witty things that can happen in this world and the encouragement to click on everything and see what can happen you know that's the that's the stuff i loved and it's definitely definitely all here i I don't know how i'm going to follow that up because i I think you nailed it and i and i think um secret of monkey island is one of those games that uh is in some ways it's like a games journalist's um double-edged sword because you really want you know you want to spend your time talking about these monolithic great games but then you're like how do i do it justice how do i say something that no one has said before And, and like with some games you just you just can't you just and you just have to enthuse like it's it is uh it's an all-timer this game uh, it's the it's the first I, th- I think what you know what i can do what i can offer that's unique is is my own personal experience so I'll, I'll talk about that this is the first adventure game i played first lucas arts game i played on a mate's amiga lived on the next street from me i i fell in love with it so hard like i just needed to be around his house every night uh for for several weeks um playing it together surprisingly uh, a great co-op game in a rather unintended way i think because you can work on the puzzles together you can laugh along at the humor together and talk about which dialogue options you're going to pick a couple of things that i like really personally love about this game one of them i think kind of uh relates to all adventure games but monkey island does it so well and that's you know the sense of progression of simply going from one screen to another uh, you know early on in the game you can do that quite easily later on you need to overcome uh, challenges and puzzles in order to progress but every new screen feels like the reward for progressing mm. um, the the environments are so interesting the the world is a, a fascinating fantasy world without feeling like cliched it felt very original at, at the time and i think still still retains that and you know beautifully drawn pixel art um, a lot of this game takes place in at night in the dark and that allows the lucas arts artists to play with light and shade and color in a way that honestly for me makes every screen of this game uh, a a viable work of art uh, in its own right um, so I, I will always love it for that. Uh, and then the other one is is 
Guybrush himself, who I think is one of the great video game characters. You, I don't think you'd call him a hero. He's kind of a bumbling uh, idiot, really, kind of uh, bumbling through his own story. Um, but that makes him quite relatable as a fellow bumbling idiot. Um, and I and I love the way um, he announces himself to the world. You know, he he like he steps onto that first screen like he's you know entering a, a stage from behind the curtain, uh, and he says, you know, I'm Guybrush Three Threepwood, and I want to be a pirate. In fact, straight away in the first line of the game, you know who he is and what he wants uh, and what this game is about, and uh, that's something a lot of adventure games don't do. You know, go back to Loom. You, you watch the, the intro to Loom and you're scratching your head going, like, who are these people? What's going on? Uh, this is a really, like, alien world that I'm entering. But Monkey Island, I think, gets you on board, like, instantly. And I, I think that's key uh, to, ha- like, how mm. successful it was, how many people love this character and love being in this world and wanted to see the story continue, wanted sequels. Um, yeah, I think uh, this is... This is obviously it's got it's got to be straight on the list. Um, the only the only problem for me is um, depending on which way the wind is blowing. Sometimes I think Monkey Island Two is is a better game, but I, it's not a more special game. It's not a more important game. Mm-hmm. Okay, well then this is um, down as a yes as we move on to Monkey Island Two, nineteen ninety one. One so, one weird sorry. thing about Monkey Island I didn't know, and actually like a weird presence throughout that Rogue Leader books is how much Orson Scott Card is involved in <laughs> yeah. these games. Yeah, yeah. He wrote um, last, he wrote yeah. the insults for the insult sword fighting. Apparently, you know, you'd think that was just classic, like you know, Schaefer and Grossman kind of uh, joke smithery, but apparently not. Yeah, I mean, there was a period where he wasn't, you know, his views on certain <laughs> subjects weren't either weren't as well known or weren't and you know impeding him um getting getting work or credibility from the entertainment industry see also shadow complex 2009 um so yeah that is a bit of a strange thing to read about in retrospect um, yeah so he yeah. wrote the dig but, um, as well or he co-wrote the dig yeah loads of this stuff he just like even sort of small small roles he would just have <laughs> He's um, supposed to be an mate supporting narrative guy like a free like a free roaming writer type you yeah, know that yeah. seemed like the sort of the deal. Um, so yeah, okay, Monkey Island two then, nineteen ninety one. Um, so do both have a place on the list, or must the first one, you know, kind of like overcome the other? What do you think, Matthew? I do think Monkey Island two is the better game. A little bit more accomplished. It's got a slightly darker vibe. It has a, a definite different approach to art style. This one, they start using a technology to sort of scan in these sort of hand-drawn backgrounds, and it it just has a very different energy to it. I thought that thing Ash said about the reward of seeing a new place or a new location almost being the reward of playing this game is absolutely, like, spot on. And this is, like, the bigger game, the more ambitious game, like, the the sort of central part of this. You you can go to multiple islands, and there's so much going on, so many different like puzzle avenues you can be going down at any route I mean, this this was my big first one that i played and it's kind of a nightmare place to start because it's probably got some of like the 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 biggest scope of puzzles and like the richest inventory and the the weirdest item combinations that everything after this seems like a little bit more measured by comparison i i actually don't know like in the wider monkey island fandom like what the rankings are i don't really have you know i don't have a read on that it's not a community i'm I, i'm like part of 
yeah, I think there's the stuff in this that jumps out at me more, like the spitting competition and the nailing Stan into his coffin, and it just there's just there's so much iconic stuff. But maybe it's a bit of a Mario Galaxy one and two situation where they're just such of a piece that you kind of like need both. Thoughts, Ash? Um, I think I think I think they they do go together very well, and it's hard for people to uh, to pick one over the other. I I get the impression Monkey Island two is generally regarded as as the better and the favourite game of the two and it, and that's you know that's very well uh deserved i absolutely uh adore this game um i remember for for a while going to video game conventions i used to carry the amiga version around in my backpack wherever i went just in case i bumped into ron gilbert so i could get him to sign it um and <laughs> so far that hasn't happened uh but it's it's kind of like it, it's also kind of like a totemic game for me it's like this is an important game from my childhood some you know some things it technically does over and above the uh the original uh you talked about the graphical style which is uh, as i understand it, it it all of the backgrounds were hand painted and then scanned right. and digitized into the game which was kind of revolutionary at the time i think some people mistake it for pixel art it, it is not at all um, so I think that's really cool. It does it does give the game a, a more kind of textured, detailed look, in in my opinion, while also feeling quite classical. Um, it's also got the iMuse system, which is where they would um, program all the different music of the scenes, so that when you transition from one screen to another, no matter what screen you are going to, the music would kind of naturally transition. Uh, from one to another by by blending the notes together kind of programmatically, um, which apparently was so complicated to do, they they basically just never really wanted to do it again. And I think, I'm not sure if they did do it again or if it only happened a couple of times. Um, and there's probably more uh, uh, sophisticated or easier ways to uh, to do that nowadays with, with modern technology, but it was lauded at the, at the time. And the thing that really sticks out for me with Monkey Island 2 is, is the the story um mm. you know this is this is a storytelling team uh, between you know Schaefer Grossman and, and Gilbert who they they know what they're doing they know these characters they know the world and and they just knock it out of the park the, the quality is top notch just the storytelling structure I love the way it starts with you know Guybrush hanging from a thread while trying to hold uh, this like, enormous casket of treasure and you just kind of you just know that it then goes into you know like a flashback oh, how did i get here you're wondering that sort yeah, of thing yeah. um and you just know like if you've played the first game if you're familiar with guybrush like this this story is not going to work out for him in in a way it would a traditional hero and he's like he's not really the hero in, in many ways like elaine marley his is his great love like she's the real hero of the monkey island story she's the competent one with who knows what she's doing um the ending can we can we spoil the ending of monkey I island 2 i think we can because isn't the new game picking up directly from it uh, it's all it's always been suggested by gilbert that if he did another game it would carry on directly from that ending i think he, he is now trying to do that while also recognizing the other game so i'm not sure exactly how that's yeah. going to work we- we can talk about it if if you if you're really upset about hearing the ending of Monkey Island Two from 1991, you can skip ahead three minutes. So, 
Go ahead. One of, one of the things I love about the ending, which I'll, I'll describe in a, in a second, is that for me it goes all the way back to Guybrush's entrance, which we were talking about in the first Monkey Island. The way you know, the way I said that it sound it feels like he's stepping onto a stage. For me, Guybrush is almost like very similar to like Gordon Freeman, as, as weird as that might sound. In that, it feels like he only really exists when the player is playing the game. Like he he he's like inserted into this weird world and that very much becomes true at the end of monkey island 2 where um the kind of artifice of the the monkey island world starts to give away and it does start to become very staged like uh, and actually it's revealed that it was a like a, a theme park all along that guybrush and his his brother uh chucky who who is lechuk uh, the villain of the game, um, they kind of uh, they step out of the theme park back into the real world, and they're they're kids uh, mm. again. Uh, in you know they've been lost in in the theme park, and their parents were were looking for them. I, I think that's a really it's a sweet ending, uh, but it's also an ending that captures your imagination. It's kind of suggested that it might not be as clear cut as that. I think you get some like demonic glints in the eyes of. Uh, the, the the kid version of Lechuk. Um and it was always this feeling of like my god how are they going to follow this up in the third game and then they kind of like hand wave it away actually in Curse of Monkey Island um, but it, it, for me it's one of the all time great endings of any video game wow that is quite the, quite the thing that's uh, yeah that's cool it kind of seems impossible to um, pay that off and also um, follow up the other two games in in, a, in the mm. same game, but I suppose we'll see. It makes um, the new yeah. Monkey Island, the Twin Peaks, the return of video games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but even that acknowledged every every single bit of bullshit you can imagine. Um, part of what weighed it down. But anyway, we don't need to get into that. Uh, Ash, a very quick wider question on Monkey Island. Did you what? prefer Threepwood voiced or unvoiced? Because I have a real affection for this unvoiced era. Like... They're sort of fonts you can hear when they talk in these games. Uh, yeah, and I, and I, I suspect you, you've said similar things about the Ace Attorney games. I, I think in in the, the you know the act of reading is an important part of of how these games work. Some people on at Lucas Arts, including Ron Gilbert, have said similar things that the the way the first two games were written were were not written with a voice in in mind. They are designed to be read. Um, mm. Which is interesting. However, you know Dominic Armato, who voiced Guybrush from Curse of Monkey Island onwards, and then went on to voice him in the remakes. Mm. Um, I think he does add uh, an essential extra layer to Guybrush, like really brings him to life. So I'm, I'm a big fan. So I like him too. I'm, yeah. I'm not a zealot about it or anything. Mm. I just, um, yeah, the different coloured fonts for different characters and stuff like that's like burnt in my head as just. How those characters sort of sound, I guess, from playing on the Amiga without voice. Well, we're going to put this down as a yes as well, and then we're going to revisit it. I think is the way to do yeah, this. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, got, honestly, I'm, yeah. I, I am quite happy if one or both of our maybes is sacrificed for Monkey Island Two because it, it's just <laughs> it's that good. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's what the maybes are for. Um, okay, moving on then to 
1992's Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Um, obviously an original Indiana Jones story that was uh, notorious for giving players um, different approaches. They uh, kind of knew they had to have some kind of combat content because obviously it's an Indiana Jones game. Um, but that you could also play it in these um, uh, kind of like a more thoughtful, puzzly way. There's a third way as well, right? What uh, am I not thinking of? There's the sort of co-op one where it's you and and uh, Sophia. Um, yeah, so it's like co-op, solo mega hard puzzles, the fists path, and then co-op, which is like the two of you. It's not actually a co-op game. Well, you know. Yeah, it's just more, more, yeah, more interaction between the two. Um, yeah, so caused a lot of headaches for them because it was like basically making three times the game um is kind of how it comes across in uh the rogue leaders book but um obviously beloved a kind of really um really kind of interesting sort of extension of indiana jones after the films were seemingly done forever you know spoiler alert they wouldn't be but um you know kind of years later has a has a great reputation feels like one that instinctively should have a spot here but who knows? Like, let's, let's, let's get into it. So, um, Matthew, what do you think? I absolutely love this game when I was a teenager. Like, I, 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 in my head, this is just, like, Monkey Island 2 quality, but with Indiana Jones. have played it again since. Weirdly, it was bundled in on the Wii Indiana Jones game, Staff of Kings, uh, as, like, a bonus unlockable. And I dabbled with it then and was like, oh, it's maybe, like, still good, but not quite how I remembered it. And I think that's really how I feel about it. Like, it's quite a lot more linear than monkey island it's a lot more like cinematically driven it's almost like scenes and set pieces that are kind of self-contained there are places where it opens up more but then it does have the like you say this branching three different paths which are quite substantial and have different puzzle design in different areas even i think some of the different places they go to so i think it really captures the spirit of indiana jones i think it really gets the character of indiana jones like it's really fun to like interact with people and talk and have all the indie wisecracks uh, they may even even internally have referred to this as like indie four i think was like its yeah. code name like they did yeah this this feels like oh wow another indiana jones fi- like it feels like it could have been a film you know i remember thinking as a 10 year old or whatever like why don't they make another indiana jones film based on this game because it's right there and it's that it's you know it just works the story the, the like the mythology of it's good it's so much better than crystal skulls or what they settle on with crystal skulls I, I so i think it's not quite the game i remember i think it's definitely slightly like smaller in scope but the indiana jonesness of it is undeniably excellent what about you ash uh yeah i think this is awesome to be honest um it, it this is the point where i think lucas arts adventures started to become more cinematic and you know right rightfully so when you're dealing with such a cinematic character um, the opening of the game um, is mm. is one of the uh, yeah I, I I replayed specifically the opening twice uh, yesterday because it's it's so much fun um, it's it's full screen um, so most most openings on early LucasArts adventures because you have the uh, the inventory and the verb commands at the bottom of the screen if they want to do like a cinematic opening they just make that area of the screen black and then you've you've got the top portion of the screen in in a in a narrow window fate of atlantis draws that out completely and gives and gives you a a full screen experience which feels really expansive and cinematic weirdly so because actually you think cinematic is is widescreen but just getting all of this extra image on your screen so much more kind of foreground detail background detail is Mm. is a real treat in that section um, it's also quite action-packed for a um, for an adventure game. So the, in this opening section, you've got the um, credits 
playing over the top again very filmic um and you've got um, a very small very limited um playable sequence through these credits as you, you start off in like the loft of the university you're looking for an artifact that's been stored away i think he says a statue you start clicking on all these statues that are in the loft one of them you go up to it and a trap door opens below and you fall into the next room below mm. and it turns into this series of like indiana jones pratfalls as he investigates <laughs> things in these like dusty old beautifully painted rooms uh, and just like crashes through a floor falls through a a coal shoe uh, just bang 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 through all of these rooms until eventually he finds what he wants and 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 within within seconds you've gone through this beautiful um still interactive opening sequence um you've already met one of the villains who's scarpered off with something and you and Indiana Jones had a tussle with him on the floor in like a really well animated sequence and I think all of this lasts about two minutes and you're like right I'm in like this is this is such an exciting way to open an adventure game yeah it just grabs your attention Uh, I really like the voiced version of this which I played on the, uh, the is it Staff of Kings on the Wii? Yeah, I bought that just. I mean, Staff of Kings was a grotesquely terrible game. Um, <laughs> I bought it just for uh, Fate of Atlantis, which was I think it's pretty hard to come by in, in in any other way at the time. Played it with the Wii remote, had a great time. And this was this version had the voices. You've got a Harrison Ford sound alike, uh, but actually I think he does a pretty good job. And yeah. it, it, you know, it, it just lends to that cinematic feel. It lends to that Indiana Jonesiness of it all, and uh, and you have uh, you have a good time with it. Um, mm. Whether it's uh, top five material, whether it's Hall of Fame material, I'm not sure. Just because I think there might be better, yeah. more more important games. T- but it, it is great. 10-year-old me or 12-year-old me or however old I was would have said, like, this was 100% like one of the greatest games of all time. But I, like, I think they, I think they have made better games. Um, I had huge frustration with it because I originally had this on Amiga and it was on, like, 11 or 12 floppy disks. And I remember when I got it, one of my discs, I was missing a disc. One of the discs was duplicated. Like, I didn't have disc eight or something. And I had to send it off. I had to, like, write to, you know. Um, George. <laughs> yeah uncle george and say please send me this disc and they did but for ages like you know i could play it up until it said insert disc eight because you'd be changing discs like every other couple of scenes it was a real ball like to play these games back in the day but um that you're right about the voice in the later version it's 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 a great indie voice and the indie writing is it's just really spot on as well it's yeah pretty pretty cool it sounds like this has to go in the maybe pile doesn't it yeah so yeah. um yeah let's let's pop it there and come back to it um okay 1993's Day of the Tentacle. Oh boy. Um, so, Ash, <laughs> kick off. Ash. Oh boy. So this is uh, the sequel to Maniac Mansion. It, in many ways, a less ambitious version of that game, but in, in some ways, a more ambitious version. So, rather than picking three characters from from a from a pool, uh, you have three set characters. Um, with one of them, Bernard, being a you know, returning character from the the first game. Back to the mansion. Back to uh, evil. Dr. Fred and, and Nurse Edna and the purple and green tentacle, all, all this kind of, this this cast of cartoony villains and anti-heroes back again, but this time in in a kind of like 
Chuck Jones, Warner Brothers animation sort of style, which visually I, I just think was incredible at the time and still holds up really well at the um the recent I say recent like ten years ago remaster um doesn't monkey around with it too much because it, it just looks so good. Um this was this was getting into the era of like C D ROM adventure games. So uh games had to feel bigger and better looking. Uh sound was more important. This one was was fully voiced. It might have been the first one to come fully voiced as standard. I, I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, and uh, yeah, just really like invited you to play it uh, because it, it looked and sounded so great. And then when you did play it, um, yeah, it, lo- it had lost some of the innovation of the multiple characters, but it got so much back by having this um, time travel structure and narrative. So each of your three characters is in a different time period and much of the puzzle solving comes from uh, what you can learn in different periods but also how you can uh, use time to your advantage and I I haven't played this game in years I'm going to really struggle to remember uh, the best examples I always remember you could send a bottle of wine from the past into the present or the future and it, it aged so far it became vinegar uh, yeah. so I then had uh, a, a a particular use uh, that you would need vinegar for. Um, there was something to do with cutting down a tree, which I think um, yeah, it was to do with George yeah, Washington. Like the, che- the, the, the cherry, the Washington's cherry tree. One thing I will say about this game is it, a lot of it hinges on quite American-centric history yeah, references. Which, as a as a kid, I was like, "What the fuck? Who the fuck are these guys?" <laughs> uh, not, not with that, not with that language, obviously. Um, but there's there's definitely a big puzzle about like rewriting the constitution to change mm. stuff in the future. The the historical period is when the the founding fathers are writing the constitution, so you can impact that to change what has then happened in present day. Like you decree someone has to have a certain item in their house, and so it appears and things like that. Yeah, you've got you've got Benjamin Franklin out in a field flying a, a kite, and I think you have to try and attach a key to it so he gets struck by lightning. Um, and it's it's really weird for me because I, I think everything I know about that period of American history, I know from Day of the Tentacle. So I, right. I have no <laughs> real confidence of whether my historical knowledge is <laughs> completely warped or not. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, so do you think that that sort of ingenuity to, uh, you know, the kind of approach to puzzle design means it deserves a place in the Hall of Fame, Ash? I think this is one of the finest games that LucasArts made, both in terms of its structure and mechanics, but also its presentation style, which is, you know, presentation is hugely important to these games. Um, although, you know, it's been, I don't think I've played it since the remaster, which came out in, I don't know, I want to say like 2014. 2014, I think. Yeah, so enough time to have forgotten some of it, um, and I haven't gone back to it recently, but mm. it's, you know, recently enough that I can confidently say this, this, is, this is a great game. And one of those uh, one of those games where you see like the Tim Schafer difference or what Tim Schafer brought to these games. He was more mm. in command of this one and it, it just oozes his personality and humour. Um, yeah, I think I think it's great. Mm. Well, that sounds like a yes, so we'll give it a yes yeah. and uh, and then circle back. Um, okay, good stuff. So we move on to... So how how many yeses weeks? do we have now? Uh, three. Three. Oh, it's getting, <laughs> it's getting tight. Yeah, I can see at least like 
at least two other yeses coming. I know, up, I but, know um, which two I I want in, and I'm not confident that Matthew or, or yourself will agree. Okay, interesting. Okay, uh, yeah. Okay, well, um, we'll get into that. So, okay, we move on to 1993. Sam and Max hit the road. So, uh, my understanding of this is Steve Purcell was a LucasArts employee, right? And he yeah. had created this kind of underground oddball comic book, um, and essentially, like LucasArts licensed it to make this game. Um, which is actually that licensing element is part of why they wouldn't end up making uh, sequels down the road, or why they would cancel sequels they're already making. So this seems to have a, you know, we're in the kind of firmly in the era here where all of these games have like um, outsized reputations. But um, I think like the the sort of very specific like vibe of the characters is maybe one of the reasons this has um, this has endured in the memories of people. Where do you think it sits in the canon, Ash? Uh, this is this is one of my uh, two yeses. Uh, to be honest, I, I think I think it's it's, okay. it's a great game. Yeah, in, t- in terms of the history, so Sam and Max were characters created by Steve Purcell for uh, his own comics, but they also kind of became like unofficial LucasArts mascots, like within the company. So they they used them. They had a, a Sam and a Max sprite that they would use in a scum training exercise when they were interviewing new designers. Uh, and they would say, look, here's the Scum engine, here's these two characters, make make a scene with them. Um, and they, you know, they crop up in little cameo appearances in, in other games here and there. And it's this kind of natural happy accident that they were like, well, we've got these characters, let's let's do something here. And I think sometimes when an idea evolves that organically, that's usually a, a very good thing because the, the creative team have become used to this, they want to do it, they, they have... They already probably have some ideas percolating away, uh, and you know Steve Purcell is is a great artist. He did the box art for uh, the original Monkey Island games, for example. Uh, did a lot of the in-game art for these games as well. Um, but he's also kind of like, as much as as he is an artist, he's also like a cartoonist and a storyteller in his own right. He works at Pixar now. He was a co-director on Brave. Uh, not mm. the best, not the best Pixar film, mm. <laughs> um, but you know it's still a Pixar film. Summer Max Hit the Road is a very Steve Purcell game. It has a lot of his sense of humour in it, which is to to use these absurd comic book animal characters to very much like poke fun at the the real world. So you you've got a couple of things going on in this game. One is that it's kind of like a parody of like hard boiled detective fiction which works really well with the voice acting so you've got got sam being being this like film noir style detective but he's also a dog whose mate is a a kind of savage rabid rabbit um or rabbity thing as they say um so that that gives it this really unique feel i think um but also the, the hit the road element which is them on a road trip around america they're taking in all of these um, kind of weird side of the road like tourist attractions that you might find in America, things that have been standing there for 60 years and are still somehow going because when you're on a road trip for a thousand miles you need to stop somewhere mm. and you're probably going to stop at something a little bit eye-catching like the you know the biggest ball of yarn in the world for example Yeah. Um, and, and again similar to Day of the Tentacle it gives you know, it gives a young British child this like strange kind of window into uh, American history and Americana. Um, gives it yeah. a feeling that's unlike anything we grew up with, um, and uh, I think it makes it a great game. I haven't talked at all about 
the gameplay. I think actually the gameplay and the puzzles are pretty traditional, more kind of Monkey Island style. I don't remember much innovation. Aside from you can use Max as as an item in some puzzles, mm. which is, is pretty good fun. Um, but mostly the charm of this is is the story and the characters, I think. So um, despite being more traditional, that's enough for you to give it a yes, um, Ash. What about you, Matthew? Controversially... I'd say Sam, Sam and Max is is the one I probably gel with the least. I really hate the rabbit character. Oh. I just ne- I never found him funny. I st- I still don't like. I kind of group this in with the slightly kind of ugly cartoons of the nineties. You kind of Ren and Stimpy's and that kind of stuff, which I wasn't into either. Like it's that kind of adult zaniness has never really done it for me despite being a zany adult myself. <laughs> That's just the through line in my tastes, you know. I'm, the things that occupy a similar space now, you're probably like your Rick and Mortys or whatever, don't do it for me either. Like, what is, like, considered, like, the edgier animation of the day has just never really spoken to me. If you don't gel with the characters, this game is, like, quite hard work. Though <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're right, I do like the Americana element of it. You know, it's got, like, it's beautiful. It's got a really distinct art style and... I, like, I enjoyed it enough. This wouldn't be in my personal Hall of Fame. I think this has to balance out to a maybe, basically. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Ash. <laughs> it's all right. I, I suspected that might be the case. And I think, objectively, the thing that lets this down is is that it's it's not it doesn't really push the medium forwards. It came out around the same time as Day of the Ken- Tentacle, and Day of the Tentacle yeah. is much more kind of forward-facing. Um, so that you know that lets it down in a Hall of Fame context, and if you don't click yeah, with the characters, yeah. then there's not much going on at all. I will say though, I felt sort of similar for for a long time about Day of the Tentacle. Like I thought Day of the Tentacle was a, it's a little bit like in your face in places, mm. but actually when the remastered thing came out, I was like, oh, I I fully get this. So maybe I'm just like a big Sam and Max replay away from like really clicking with do, it. Do you think the Telltale games might have affected your view? Yeah, maybe. maybe. They're kind just, of just not gen- very funny. Hard work. Oh boy. I reviewed one of them and I just I thought it was just, it just didn't laugh for four very, very long hours. And then, <laughs> yeah. Oof. I, it's, it was tough because I'd only played a little bit of the original game then and I think that definitely put me off going back to it, which is <laughs> tough. But yeah. Uh, gosh, good God. How could they have no jokes in them that, 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 that game? Uh, okay, we're going to balance out to a maybe because we've still got at least three classics to go through five games in total so let's let's move on to 1995's full throttle um a game that sort of represented a bit of a step up in cinematic presentation you had a full professional voice cast you had them using this uh rebel assault um two uh, sort of like animation system which basically made the game look a lot shinier in sections than um than previous um lucasarts adventures uh, it was a big seller um, like a legit success um, for LucasArts, and uh, yeah, it seemed to it seemed to like represent maybe like look, maybe like what you might call the next generation a little bit at the time. But I don't know. Let's um, pick it up from there. So, um, Ash, you got a lot of affection for this one? Not really. Um, I have played it. I played it and finished it, which isn't particularly tough to do because it's a short cinematic adventure. Um, a lot of the more kind of frictional elements um in terms of puzzles are like smoothed away almost entirely really to the, to the point where actually i think some of the action sequences that they put in are more difficult than the puzzle sequences or, or at least are for, for me i i, I found mm. myself struggling with 
trying to play action within the, the scum framework. Um, I don't dislike this game. I think I think the characters are really fun. The art is great. Voice acting is is fantastic. Uh, it's got some real credible actors. I think Mark Hamill is in this one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he's yep. he's Rip Burger. Right. Yeah. Um, and it you know it oozes that Tim Schafer personality uh, yet again. You can draw a through line from this to Brutal Legend. Uh, I think in in terms of uh, it really shows off his personality, his interests. It's got a real kind of like heavy metal feel uh, to it. So in terms of like artistry, like the you know the the creator of this work is is right there to to see, um, which I always admire. Um, mm. But as as a game, I, it feels a little bit like disposable to me in in the way like the best LucasArts adventures don't, and I and I think that's because they smoothed away so much of the friction that it then doesn't stick to you quite as much. There's something mm. to be said about getting stuck on puzzles and spending, even when you like walk away from the computer, you might spend a day thinking about those puzzles, and that, that does make a game quite sticky in a way this one isn't for me. Well, I do believe that they um, updated uh, the uh, the action a little bit mm. um, in the remaster to make it a bit more bit smoother a bit easier for modern players um uh, yeah so um matthew how about you what's your take on this one in the same way that like maniac mansion is is kind of like the real like ron gilbert's interested interest the still like the more mechanical edge this is like the extreme of tim schaefer this is like big narrative world really like singular like weird like very sort of complete bold vision I, I, i was always surprised this was the breakout sort of hit it was because if you look at their other games, I'd say they're set in like more traditionally like nerdy, dweeby universes, and suddenly this world of like bikers and metal. I don't really, so I don't really see the through line from the other LucasArts games to this. In, in my head, I you know before I knew the sales figures, I had always assumed this this had like crashed and burned commercially, um, just on the grounds of like, well, surely the bike. Like, I had no interest in buying it when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, for example, but I'm um, obviously very wide of the mark on that. But I I really agree with Ash. I think this is like a, a really good bit of storytelling, but almost doesn't want the adventure game to get in the way of that storytelling, and mm. and so it kind of just it just pairs it back a, a little bit too much. But if if this was a Tim Schafer Hall of Fame, this is a yes. Well, we've had our first no since 1989 here, <laughs> so that's good. Um, I, I we, think we did need a few. I think this one is on Game Pass, by the way, on both Xbox and console. Um, yeah. along with Day of the Tentacle as well. Um, so, you know, well worth playing, even, even though we're poo-pooing it a, li- a little bit. You, you know, you can complete it in about four hours, I think. Uh, definitely mm. worth play. Yeah, it's also, um, I think it's, I don't know if this is running when we're going live, but there's a Humble Bundle that's launched with a bunch of Disney-owned games in it. And um, all three of the remasters they did are in that Humble Bundle, um, and I just bought it so I could have these games on Steam Deck to play. Um, because that sounds like a nice thing to do. I wish I'd listened to this podcast before recording this podcast, because <laughs> I bought both of these full price on Steam this week. <laughs> oh, man, okay, that's, that hurts me. But, um, dumb, know, I am dumb. <laughs> it's good for Double Fine, at least. Um, okay, good. Well, we'll just just take some out of the uh, Patreon pot, Matthew, to make yourself feel better. Um, balances out, probably. Okay, so next up we've got The Dig. Um, which feels like a no on the surface, but is an interesting game. So if this is one of Ash's yes, I'll, I'll, 
I won't be too surprised given some of the contrarian opinions of Ash that I've, con- <laughs> I've kind of contested over the years. But this kind of emerged from Steven Spielberg, who wanted kind of like came up with this the idea of this story of like trying to stop an asteroid from colliding with earth but then um there is essentially like um sort of like alien races advanced technology on this um this asteroid when these uh, people arrive to destroy it now when it came along i think it was dinged for being a little bit out of date graphically and it seemed like it was a headache to make um in retrospect like a few friends of mine who play these games say that kind of like it's it is also ran compared to some of the others but i don't know i'm really keen to hear the ashley day take on this mm, this is not one of my other yeses uh you'll pro- probably be relieved okay. to hear uh, <laughs> uh it is it is interesting do you know this according to i think this is in the rogue leaders book it might be in another book i was reading this week uh this is the best selling lucas arts adventure game which, Maybe it's the Spielberg involvement. I, th- I, I think, because you, you mentioned that uh, Full Throttle sold well as well, I, I think it probably has a lot to do with the rise of CD-ROM and Windows 95 at the time, right. just broadened the market mm. at, at the right time for these games. But yeah, it's strange, because they are definitely not the best games that LucasArts made, but there you go. Um, yeah, this one feels... It's a very cold game for me mm. and, and hard to connect with um i think part of that is that it's a, it's a more kind of serious mature tone it's kind of it's got the tone of like a novel that your dad might read i think <laughs> um. but i'm not aren't we now at an age where that resonates <laughs> well it still feels like something my dad would read it's just that now he's oh, older okay, right. <laughs> um yeah, I really want to like it. Um, our mutual friend Simon Miller is a big fan of this game and has been telling me to That's play it. That's who I was years, referring to. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I finally played it this week for the podcast. I've always put it off and put it off because it just didn't appeal to me very much. And in in the end, it still didn't really appeal to me. I I think um, in some ways it's similar to Loom, um, which which did click with me eventually. So maybe if I played it a few more times, I'd get into it. But it's it's similar in that you're in this, largely in this like alien environment, the objects that you're finding, the things that you're interacting with are also alien, uh, <laughs> to use that word again. They're also abstract, but mm. it, it, makes it makes it hard to connect with. Also makes the puzzle solving a bit of a pain in the neck because I'm like, oh, I've got no context to go on whatsoever here and, and, and i just feel alienated uh yeah. by it so yeah i wasn't wasn't a big fan how about you matthew did you cross past this at the time as a big spielberg guy yeah i did and again this was another like i love all point and click games and then i play this when i'm like 13 and like oh this is so boring um i thought this, <laughs> i thought this was terrible when i originally played it um, playing it again now, I actually I quite liked it. Uh, I I quite like the 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 stodgy sci-fi. I quite like the more cerebral sci-fi. You know, it's not it's not it's not funny. You know, it's not there are there are a few jokes between the characters, but it's a lot more kind of like realistic. It's the most I wouldn't say grounded. It's still very filmic. Again, another big Orson Scott card involvement in this, along with um, Spielberg. I think what hobbles it still is the, the alien planet and like Ash says the 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 more abstract element like in places it almost begins to feel a bit more like a mist or something mm. which mm. i've kind of fucking hate because it's just not it, it's just pattern recognition and sort of very vague feeling design and it's 
good soundscape though like it's got a nice sort of like ethereal kind of ambient sci-fi kind of drones and whatnot and that kind of stuff speaks to me now and i i like robert patrick's voice is the main character and it's it's quite a nice grown-up performance you know it's it definitely a mature work which which resonates but it's it's not hall of fame there is one thing i really thought was clever about this game and it's that um although you control one character you've got these two companions with you uh, at all times a man and a woman a fellow astronaut and they can get into danger they can they can and do become uh, trapped in these alien hazards uh, and they they you know there's there's a constant uh, risk of death around these people that you, that you are you know you feel somewhat responsible for them i suppose as the uh, the protagonist of the game um, I thought that was a great way to introduce a sense of peril and danger into a genre that typically post Monkey Island doesn't really have that because you know you can't mm. die. So I thought that was a nice touch. And if that was in a different kind of warmer game, uh, I think it, it could have uh, could have really helped, but didn't. <laughs> All right then. Well, it's um, again a relief to have another no. I thought that'd be a no, but um, definitely an interesting one in terms of its background and. Um, I think it's like a, yet another sort of like um, Steven Spielberg being vaguely interested in games and then sort of getting distracted and going off to make like three other things that aren't a computer game and then the end result only being like partially connected to him. Mm. It's um, kind of a weird history of him and video games. But um, yes, okay, so next up is The Curse of Monkey Island. So this is the uh, first in the series that didn't feature um, Ron Gilbert's uh, contributions. Uh, it was the first kind of like CD-ROMified entry in the the series in terms of like having cutscenes and voice actors, um, musical score, all that stuff was um, you know taken to the next level. It was the last game to use Scum. Uh, Matthew, I feel like you have a big affection for this game. Is that right? Yeah, I absolutely love this. After I got into point and click games, this is this is the first one I can remember like anticipating. And like seeing screens of it in the mag and thinking like, holy shit, this 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 looks like an animated movie. Like the the cartoon graphics of it, and like maybe it's a superficial take, but f- you know, for me, I think I think it has all the core ingredients of the Monkey Island. I think the writing's still pretty funny. I think the puzzles are zany. I like the story, but I loved the production values on this. I thought this was such a leap. So sort of sad that they this is their last two D game when it is such a leap, and then they kind of move out of this era like. I'd love to have followed a strand where they kept on just stuck to their guns and made increasingly gorgeous, like interactive animated movies. Because I think for a, for a period, you know this, you know this this did look kind of close to what you could imagine a two D film. You know the cutscenes are kind of film quality, I'd say, uh, and like the big orchestral takes on like the music from the original games. You know I. I think I talked in the PC draft about like rewatching the opening to this game when the theme tune kicks in. Like it's a real, still a kind of hairs on the back of the neck moment for me. And they just, even though it's different writers, I just thought they kind of they got the characters. I thought they added um, in Murray the demonic talking skull, like an all-time great Monkey Island character. Uh, yeah, I, I I really love this game. Yeah, that's that is interesting here because I think even like Gilbert himself was um, praising it in Rogue Leaders, saying that he was quite he was pretty impressed with um, what this other other team did with his um, his series. How about you, Ash? How do you feel about this one? Uh, very similar. I absolutely adore this game. Uh, I really do. Um, I have a very specific memory of this game, which uh, ties me to my uh, 
uh, grumpy retro roots. Um, I remember, I can't remember what city we were in, but um, me and my family walking around a city shopping, uh, they were talking about buying a, a, a new PC. Um, my mum had had like a DOS machine that we didn't really use very much, but this was like Windows 95 era, let's get a PC. I was railing against it because I was like a diehard Amiga fan. I was still using my Amiga. I was like, no, we shouldn't have a PC. You can do everything you need to do on Amiga, which is not true. It uh, wasn't true. <laughs> um, and we walked, I think we walked into HMV and my brother and I were looking at games and I picked up the Curse of Monkey Island box and I was looking at the back of the box, looking at the screenshots and something in my brain went, you need to change your stance on, on the PC <laughs> <laughs> right now. A literal epiphany. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we, we need a PC in the house today. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it must have seemed really strange to my parents that I had this like instant change of, uh, of political stance. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I don't know if we actually did get a PC, but it was, it was years before I managed to play Curse. I think I played it in the early 2000s. Um, and even then, I still thought it looked and sounded absolutely gorgeous. It captured a lot of the feeling of the first two Monkey Island games, even though it was it was so much more modern. It still still felt like Guybrush. It still felt like that world. Voice acting for the same time for me didn't um, didn't contradict any of that. Only added to it. Um, I thought it was an awesome game. I've replayed it a couple of times since, and it's still still holds up um i'm baffled as to why it hasn't had uh, a kind of hd reissue i just want the same thing but a bit kind of crisper and cleaner don't change it just make it up res maybe there's some technical reason that that can't be done um but i think i think over the years um i think this one is perhaps not as well played or as well remembered as it should be and it and it really deserves to be it's uh it's a cracking mm, game well it sounds like we have another yes here well uh, well do we can, well let's put it as yes and come back to it shall can we can, can, we, uh, can we fill three three or five slots with monkey island games uh, <laughs> that feels wrong well that's something we can uh we can litigate shortly <laughs> so um right Second to last, uh, 1998's Grim Fandango, uh, a Tim Schafer joint, first like fully 3D uh, adventure game they made. Mexican Day of the Dead theme. We most recently discussed it on the 90s PC gaming draft when I picked it. In that draft, I didn't win. So um, our listeners certainly don't have much respect for it, Matthew, seemingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Matthew, I know this is like a, an all-time fave of yours, so why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I, I a bit like I was saying with kind of tim schaefer building really singular universe in full throttle um this is yeah just a a mad fantasy comic vision uh set in the afterlife where you play a kind of travel agent who kind of uh, visits people when they die and then moves them on to uh their final destination sort of purgatory world i guess sort of mixed in with this sort of film noir sort of genre sort of tropiness in in a just a really compelling sophisticated way i mean it's a really like adult story in that it's about like death and like literally you know not moving on in terms of not being able to make it to your final destination but also just sort of dwelling with sort of un, you know unrequited love or regrets of not having lived the sort of life you want to live and thematically a, a you know uh, such a massive leap i think as entertaining as most of the games we've discussed are i don't think any of them 
have like a as deep a like emotional core as this game as an actual puzzle game i think they're still sort of wrestling with the sort of 3d of it they were sort of relearning everything and so they'd sort of you know they're, they're almost like a little simpler within it it's not a game i would remember for its puzzles i remember for its world its characters its story and just really thinking that this was this playable film that i fell in love with again like i said on the draft there are cut scenes in this that are just burnt into my brain as like not just some of my favourite game moments, but some of my favourite film moments. I just thought it was so, so film literate, and he he, the cinematics in this are just so well done. This for me is a big yes. Okay, good. Well, I um I expect Ash will also go to bat for this, yeah. but we'll see. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, I think this is this is an all time classic. I think it transcends um its genre in in many ways, and it does that. Um, because of the world and the characters and the story that that it has, I think it it's relevant to modern games players who um, I think have, have in the indie age have grown used to um, a kind of higher class of storytelling in games, uh, and I think it fit. I think it fits in 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 the modern era, maybe even more than it did in in the late nineties. Really, thankfully, there's a fantastic uh, remake uh, readily available that. Uh, preserves everything that was great about it while smoothing away some of the rough edges. Um, I will say critically, I think, you know, as the first uh, Grime engine game, they moved on from Scum to Grime, which I think which just means Grim engine, um, might mean something else. Um, it It's a bit wonky in terms of the way it controls. Uh, I, you know, in the original version, I found myself kind of sometimes walking in the wrong direction, not understanding how the 3D space operated or, <laughs> yeah, or, right. or you know, strug- struggling to point and click in, in, as, in as natural a way as I would have done in 2D. I think that's smoothed out a little bit in the remake, but it's still kind of an issue. Uh, but I can easily forgive it um, because the, mm. the, the world and the characters and the story are just, are just so good. I think this is easily the most kind of mature and adult story in the LucasArts canon, um, you know, without losing any of the kind of originality and personality that LucasArts games are known for. Uh, but, it ha- but it does have this um, very relatable, human, emotional driven story, beautifully told and and beautifully kind of visually represented poetically at times, I think. And I, mm. I'm conscious you know, we did spoil the ending of Monkey 2. I don't really want to spoil Grim Fandango. So I think there's still a lot of people who haven't played it, and it is readily available in in many places now. I think you you just have to play it, go in with very few expectations, and I, I think it would really surprise people. And and I think it's you know unlike some of the other games we've we've talked about, the you know uh, unlike Full Throttle, another Tim Schafer game, I think it does stick with you. I think it, it's it's something that once you've played it, you kind of carry it with you for for years mm. to come. So yeah, so yes. All right then, good. Uh, a yes, it doesn't have Monkey Island in the title. It's good to uh, good to see. <laughs> um, so last up then, uh, we come to the uh, what is largely renowned as the black sheep of the Monkey Island series, Escape from Monkey Island. Um, first, a three D entry and the end of the LucasArts adventure canon. Grim Fandango's poor sales seems to put an end to their appetite to make this. At the same time, we are about to be awash with um, mixed fortunes of prequel games, some good, some absolutely terrible. 
um, but that would nonetheless make a lot of money for LucasArts. So um, that coincides with people, I think, um, calling out the genre generally as being uh, old hats, whether fair or not. Not fair, really. But um, yeah, so this is kind of like last hurrah. Matthew, let's start with you. You you a big escape guy? I think I got it for Christmas. I really wanted it. I, I liked it enough. Where curse has i think does continue like the tone and the characters spot on i think this one is a lot more hit and miss i think the central storyline of this game which revolves around well there's several strands but one of the strands is about a kind of an australian who's a bit like rupert murdoch kind of buying up the caribbean and sort of gentrifying the caribbean and for me it was a little bit too much of a like a real world problem for this fantasy universe and it never really clicked i remember thinking it was it was slightly out of sync with what i wanted from this this universe which was more of a kind of a, a sort of wry pirate lens at real world habits this was just too much of a collision of like reality i don't know if it's because i because you know we'd seen what three monkey islands looked like in 2d but for, for me like i thought this was a much uglier harder like game to fall in love with visually than grim fandango you know that that really felt very kind of cohesive this just felt like quite a crude 3D attempt at recreating Monkey Island. It has like none of the like visual clutter of it. It could just due to the nature of the engine, it's a lot more it's a lot sort of simpler to look at. I don't really like how this game looks now. Like it, I don't have much sort of fondness for it. But it has got some good stuff. Like uh, arguably one of the things Curse does a bit more poorly is Elaine as a character is quite like sidelined in it. You're basically trying to kind of she gets turned into a statue and you're trying to turn her back in this she's like uh you know much more of a sort of her own character and like she was in one and two and that's definitely something to be celebrated but i don't have like the happiest memories of this one to be honest i think this is probably going to be a no this one because we have you know three other monkey island games jostling for its place but what's your take on this one ash um yeah i think this game was a mistake um that's <laughs> pretty brutal i know but i, I think when you when you look at the first three Monkey Island games, uh, you know, they're, they're such beautiful works um, that that they they really hold up. They last for a long time. They're a pleasure to return to. I played this once. I played it all the way through on PlayStation 2. Um, actually, the, the 3D controls worked pretty well on the DualShock. So that was, that was something. It felt like they were starting to understand how to make a 3D game. But graphically, it is. Uh, it, it was so ugly at the time, and it's only <laughs> aged with time. Um, so I don't think it. Um, you know, visually, it just doesn't hold up in in the way the other three games do, which feel more timeless. I don't remember much about the story that really grabbed me, but what Matthew was saying about it being too of a too much of a real world problem, I do remember thinking that, and it it kind of throws you out of the fiction for for me it like jolts you out of the world and that you know when you go back to the original monkey island that's talking about you know sit sitting in the dark and being immersed in this world escape from monkey island is is achieving the opposite so it's a, a, a failure in that respect i i think um puzzles and gameplay um it gets criticized for the um, monkey combat sequence which oh, is, yeah. is a tremendously <laughs> difficult uh, puzzle. I kind of liked it at the time I played it. Um, it was one of those puzzles where you have to get out a notepad and pen. It's kind of like a code-breaking puzzle, so you're writing down patterns and sequences. Um, 
uh, I played I played this over a, a weekend when I was a games journalist and I you know I was in my twenties and I had the time to sit down and really work it out and felt quite satisfied and smug that I did. That's always a great feeling uh, in life. But you know ultimately you know I'm I'm clutching at straws to think of something positive to mm. say about this game and and you know for a long time it was the last game in in this fantastic series and I think a real like bum note for it to go out on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tough times. This is actually like the first of any of these types of games I ever played. Actually, um, uh, to be honest, I quite liked it. <laughs> um, I found it just—I found the tone of it like I found it genuinely funny. Um, I wasn't appalled by the graphics. I don't know. I guess because I probably didn't—I didn't have the experience with the 2D arts LucasArts games. Um, didn't have that particular problem. Like the voice actors, um, just it was kind of amusing. Borrowed it from a friend. Played like two or three hours of it. Um, I have quite good memories of it, but I'm sure, you know, I can see exactly why this would be unappealing to um veterans of the series. Yeah, I would um, say I I I don't think it I don't think it's like a total car crash for for me. It's just like I love the other games. It's still better than it's better than like the Telltale Monkey Island games. And it's better than like the Telltale Sound Max games. Like it's still better than a lot of modern point and click games. It's just not the final full stop of this particular story you were hoping for. Well, that's fine because we needed another no, so that's um, that works for me. But um, some some good takes there between the reasonable and the appalled. So, <laughs> I, I will I will um, add because I feel like I've savaged it. I liked this game enough to finish it, and I think it's not yeah. as bad as people say. It's just you know when we're talking about a hall of fame, like it it wouldn't even get into the Monkey Island Hall of Fame, let alone the Lucas Arts Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay good stuff so in which case we've got four maybes and five yeses so let's just go through the yeses we've got our hall of fame so far contains the secret of monkey island monkey island 2 day of the tentacle uh the curse of monkey island and grim fandango that's a good list not much variety to it um so my question to you is should any of the maybes move up and take a spot so we have um maniac mansion Loom, Indiana Jones, The Fate of Atlantis, Sam and Max hit the road. I feel like the Hall of Fame is too is too Monkey Island heavy. It is. <laughs> of the maybes for me personally, Indiana Jones is the one. But Ash, what 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 would you elevate from the maybes? I mean, this for me goes back to the question of what are we trying to achieve with the yeah. the Hall of Fame. Um, personally, I would put Maniac Mansion in there because I I think it. Um, it established so much that is critical to this genre and was ambitious and, and more game-like it in in a way that none of the other titles were. Uh, but you are right that with Day of the Tentacle, we didn't talk about this, but in Day of the Tentacle, you can go up to a PC, click on it, and Maniac Mansion is fully playable within it anyway. So that probably gets by on a technicality. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, you smuggled six games in. Yeah, if, uh, <laughs> if, 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 yeah, if Judge Samuel will allow it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, that. I will allow that. Um, yeah, we we accept the premise that Maniac Mansion is included in the Hall of Fame via Day of the Tentacle. That is allowed. Good. Uh, so yeah, I, I I completely agree. It's too Monkey Island heavy, and I think as much as I love Curse of Monkey Island, Monkey Island one and two are just so important, so timeless. I I would swap out Cursed for what. Um, I think I'm happy to go with Fate of Atlantis. It's it's a cool game. It does some interesting things that the others don't. And, you know, 
it's very Lucasfilm. Yeah, is it is it your true heart pick of those remaining maybes? Oh no, my heart my heart pick would be Sam and Max. <laughs> yeah. well, listen, I I I th- I think I I would ra- I would I don't know per- personally I would rather defer to your heart pick. Then don't don't try and appease me because I just because I don't like the comic tone of <laughs> Sam and Max. Well, here's another way of looking at it. Um, if you add up, if you were to look at this mathematically, if I if I award Fate of Atlantis a score of how much I like it, and you do the same, and then we did that exercise for Sam and Max, I think the total score would be higher for Fate of Atlantis. But I'm going to give you final say on this, Ash. So well, you I, can. I'm going to give you final gonna... say, Sam. Because <laughs> you, you 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 can you can resolve a tiebreaker as a, as the judge. Okay, I personally think Indiana Jones is like a kind of cool wrinkle in the the sort of history of these games. Like it's not exactly like the others. In some ways, I think it represents maybe the slightly wider tonal variety of these games. Um, mm. Just in terms of like it's not just a kind of like. You know, it's not just a kind of comic adventure. It's yeah. got other strings to its bow. So maybe that way you're getting a bit closer to some of the other games in this list that don't get a look in. It's obviously like got the Lucas heritage and being tied to the Indiana Jones films. So that's got some value too. Um, if you'd have really gone to bat though, Ash, I would have um, taken Sam and Max over Fate of Atlantis. So, so um, yeah. In terms of variety, I think Fate of Atlantis adds a different tone like sam and max has some shared dna comedy wise with day of the tentacle like they're both kind of have that kind of playable cartoon energy to them and so indiana jones definitely represents a slightly more mature maybe lucasarts which you know would then also account for like would cover it would tick a little bit of like the dig box <laughs> it's the, well. it's the mature lucasarts game that's not boring uh which i think yeah. is quite an achievement <laughs> and, I, and i think also like you know the thing it does of having three different gameplay paths you can follow that is pretty innovative and when it's up against mm. sam and max which really does nothing innovative uh i think that makes a strong case for it i'm i'm happy okay. with Fate of atlantis well, that's really interesting because you've got four games in a row there, uh, four releases in a row that get into the Hall ah. of Fame. So, Secret of Monkey Island, Monkey Island Two, Indiana Jones: The Fate of Atlantis, and Day of the Tentacle, um, all within a four-year period. That's the period. golden so, era. Um, yep, yeah, and then um, you leap forward to Grim Fandango, which I think is important to have in there too. That's a good Hall of Fame, guys. I think that's that's good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy with this as an, as an experiment. If you are not happy at home, let us know uh, via the Twitter backpage pod or on um, the Patreon if you're on there. Um, just let us know what you think of our our suggestions there. But oh, they will let us know. That's what point and click <laughs> fans are like. <laughs> um, this is really fun though, and um, thanks so much for coming on the the episode, Ash. It's been nice to have you. Uh, it's, it's been uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to corner you at Gamescom and basically suggest uh, this topic. Very very kind of you to tolerate <laughs> that. <laughs> no, it's um, you know, it's, it's something that I know that's pa- that Matthew is passionate about. It's you, you know, you refuse to come on the Kirby Games episode <laughs> for some reason. Uh, we don't need to go into that. Um, but uh, no, it's been really good to have you, Ash. So um, thanks for sharing some of your memories and your immense expertise on this subject. Where can people find you on social media, etc.? Um, I only really use Twitter. Um, let's see how long that lasts. The way things are going, uh, but you can find me on Twitter at uh, JellyScare. Um, d- people ask me why it's jelly scare. I like the visual image of a scared jelly shaking and oh, quivering. Okay. 
Uh, I just like it. I get what can I say? Um, and if you search for games from the black hole on google.com or Twitter, you'll find my blog where I talk about old games. Um, I've covered a couple of point and click adventures on there, very obscure ones, uh, Universe on the Amiga, which was a sci-fi adventure by Core Design, and uh, Operation Stealth um, on the Amiga, also known as James Bond the Stealth Affair, a, a James Bond-themed point and click adventure that is largely rubbish. <laughs> good. <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's... Yeah, if you want to go into the very depths of uh, Ash's gaming knowledge, that's um, that blog will take you there. You also regularly contribute to Retro Gamer, is that right, Ash? Yeah, I do a bit of retro writing here and there, so I'll crop up in Retro Gamer from time to time. Most recently did a Top 25 Light Gun, light gun Games article. Um, also contributing to... Where did, to, uh, where did oh, Ghost, Ghost Squad sit? Ghost Squad sat in number one, Matthew. Oh. Yes! <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oh, yes. I see. You can come back on the podcast now. That's good. We'll welcome you back after that. That's good. Um, yeah. Okay, good. Well, um, yeah, thanks so much, Ash. And um, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Mr. Basil underscore pesto. This podcast is supported by Patreon, patreon.com slash backpagepod. Support us if you'd like to get uh, up to two extra podcasts a month for the XL tier. Um, you help uh, Your support helps us pay our guests. So uh, Matthew will eventually um, pay Ash £40, I assume. Um, I'll let him <laughs> yeah. take care of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Samuel W. Rots on Twitter and um thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.